Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. Now, let's dive into the penultimate episode of our fourth Golden Age of Rock series, which revisits a tremendous 1997. Here is Arturo Andrade to set us up. All right, let's set the scene for this episode. In the last episode of our fourth Golden Age of Rock series, we broke down the splendid year of 1996 and the plethora of classic all-time great albums that that year yielded, as well as the legendary careers that those albums launched. For this episode, well, what can I say? All great eras come to an end, and the fourth golden age of rock is no exception, as the year 1997 provides a beautiful exclamation point to the last decade where rock and roll meant something on a real, meaningful level to pop culture as a whole. It's a year of timeless masterpieces, groundbreaking tours, and subgenres being born. Even the notable fall from graces of some big-name bands don't seem so bad in retrospect. What do we have? We have a well-respected and modestly successful art rock band from Oxford, England. They elevate themselves to the forefront of best bands on the planet by creating one of the most innovative, influential, and important albums of all time. Did they set the bar too high for rock music and in turn kill it as a major and commercial musical genre? You have two British EDM acts bringing techno and electronica to the rock idiom, thereby establishing the blueprint for a hybrid music that would dominate the next decade. You have a Canadian singer-songwriter who follows in Perry Farrell's and John Popper's footsteps by creating an all-female artist touring festival where women were showcased on a grand scale for the first time ever and ends up outgrossing both the Lollapalooza and Horde tours. You have an ascendant young British band that releases one of the greatest albums of the decade and possibly of all time, that yields a worldwide smash hit single. And it is a song that would cause the band the worst of legal headaches as the former manager of the Rolling Stones completely screws them out of huge amounts of money. Finally, the biggest band in the world and the band in line to succeed them for that title both release albums that are critically reviled and see their reputations majorly damaged. The former band, especially, sees their overly ambitious tour ending up being an indulgent, overwrought mess that underperforms in North America. It really does seem like the door slamming shut on an era. But 25 years later, are both bands' respective albums really that bad? Yours truly, curmudgeons, will attempt to wrap a bow on top of the gigantic gift box that is the fourth golden age of rock. So let's rev up the engine for that 1990s time machine one more time. So, unfortunately, Arturo, we will not be discussing Chumbawamba, the Spice Girls, the Backstreet Boys, Sugar Ray, or Green Day's Good Riddance Time of Your Life on this episode. 1997 was just that damn good. 
Yes. And were the Backstreet Boys around in 97? Yeah, that's when they got their start, actually. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah, they, uh, I think it was late that year is when they uh, introduced their first record. That was the sort of the creeping rise again of the boy band movement. Mm. Oh, boy. So, in sync, Britney and Christina. Yeah, I remember all that. Yep. So, so anyway, uh, like I said, that's all the stuff we won't be talking about. However, we will be talking about lots of great stuff. Uh, it's a really kind of an amazing year and an amazing end uh, to this fourth golden age of rock. Uh, for instance, we'll be talking about four records over the course of only two segments that belong on any good list of the top 15 rock records uh, of the era. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of amazing to think about like all that great stuff in that one category came out that year and right at the end too. So go figure. So the last year of the gold of the fourth golden age of rock. And we're going to talk a lot about it, but before we do that, we have to dip into what is that, Chris? (laughs) The parallel universe. Yes, folks. Again, uh, before we get going, and uh, into the Wayback Machine, we are going to uh, step over to that other spot and that other side of the space-time continuum where the, uh, the bands and the acts that should be huge and the songs that should be all over the radio actually are. And uh, we give uh, props to the folks who we think uh, ought to be up on the pedestal uh, for, for reals. And so uh, this week, uh, as we always do, we will uh, both be exploring uh, albums that we think are hot and worthy of Parallel Universe status. Uh, Arturo, uh, you will be uh, starting us off uh, with a really, really interesting uh, uh, young uh, lady and uh, uh, who kind of evokes both the Eagles and my morning jacket, strangely <laughs> enough. Well, I I wasn't going to make those comparisons, but I do have some other interesting comparisons to make. We're talking about Angel Olsen and her album that came out recently, Big Time. Now, back in 2014, American singer-songwriter Angel Olsen released a smoldering, emotionally punchy slice of a folk rock goodness called Burn Your Fire for No Witness. It was a breakthrough album for her in that it garnered her some really good critical reviews and a a small yet strong cult following, at least from what can be gathered from how many streams she's gotten from YouTube and Spotify. Uh, She followed that up in 2016 with My Woman, which was her attempt at a guitar-heavy big rock sound that amounted to lots of overly long guitar solos and not enough quality songwriting to back it up. In 2019, she put out All Mirrors, which personally I think was an abomination of a hybrid of dreary synth pop and even drearier maudlin string arrangements. Uh, You know what I mean. Moody, mellow, ethereal, droning synthesizers everywhere. The kind of same sounding garbage a lot of musical artists nowadays lean on like a crutch when they say they're doing something quote unquote experimental. It turns out Olsen is a lot like Sturgill Simpson. They are artists you can respect for aspiring to stylistic eclecticism, yet ironically enough, their songs work best when they're within the confines of traditional American music, particularly folk and country. Um, All of this brings us to her latest album, Big Time, which reflects that Olsen must have gotten the memo suggesting her to get, get back to her roots. And that she does, as Big Time, or at least... The first two-thirds of it 
is a beautiful, soulful country rock, the likes of which is probably the best of its kind to come out this year. Um, in a parallel universe where rock music is still a thing and country music, good country music gets on the radio, this would be on country radio. Um, so that's where the parallel universe angle comes in. Um, the album's highlights have to start off with the title track and first single off the album. Uh, essentially a modern update of the echoey, sultry sound and style of Patsy Cline. Uh, the song Big Time would be a surefire number one hit on our parallel universe version of country radio. It's also a clear cut nominee for the curmudgeon rock reports song of the year. Uh, fuck the uh, fuck the Grammys. You got us, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the album opens with All the Good Times, a classic epic send off breakup song that takes the country soul hybrid of late 1960s Dusty Springfield and amps up the drama with a carefully mixed horn section. Uh, Ghost On is the kind of gorgeous rolling piano ballad that Lana Del Rey has been trying to perfect for years without actually doing so. Uh, with lyrics like, I don't know if you can love such a good thing coming to you, and I don't know if you can love someone stronger than you're used to, uh, Olsen packs quite a bit of emotional complexity in a few lines. Uh, I mentioned that the first two thirds of this record uh, uh, is great. That's because in the last third of the album, the last three tracks, uh, it's a 10 song album. Olsen brings back the schmaltzy string arrangements that suffocate rather than enhance the songs. And the songs themselves in the last three tracks are rather formless and don't go anywhere. Regardless, if you focus on the first seven tracks, you will find a terrific singer and artist who has found her form again and has delivered a beautiful slice of Americana. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Tremendous uh, singer. Uh, I, she just has this uh, really kind of powerful but warm uh, voice. Uh, she's definitely heavy on the reverb uh, on this record. Yeah. Uh, that's that's kind of where the, the My Morning Jacket reference came from. So there's this kind of uh, spacey, uh, uh, moody uh, quality to it, which is great. And one thing I've read about her, which I guess kind of figures, is that she got her start as a uh, touring backing singer with Bonnie Prince Billy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, go figure, you know. Uh, that that kind of, uh, I guess you can't be like legit in this sort of indie folks, indie country thing if you haven't had uh, some uh, measure of... Uh, of collaboration with Will Oldham, you know, right. that's kind of like the, uh, that's kind of the badge, but no, this, this album's good stuff. I think that the best song on it, uh, for me is the, uh, is the title track, uh, coincidentally co written by her girlfriend, mm -hmm. uh, which, uh, takes on an interesting and, uh, a special level of poignancy when you consider that Olsen only came out as gay last year. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of a neat uh, uh, a celebration of our love in, in a manner that follows this sort of uh, being comfortable with herself publicly. So uh, good stuff. So and then the last third I'm OK with, like you said, it does get a little uh, stringy uh, yeah. and uh, stretches a little bit. But I mean, the vocals are still there. Um, I think that, you know, overall, the prettiness is still there. Just the um, the efficiency is yeah. not there, but yeah, I mean, that's the it, only it, thing. this is an album that aspires to like classic early seventies, you know, country rock, you know, or folk rock territory. If, if to do that, 
just make it an eight song, an eight song album. Keep it short, you know, make it just like sure. a first four songs on the, on, on the first side of vinyl, next three songs on the second side of vinyl. You got a perfect record. Okay, well, they, you know, but, but Angel Olsen loves her strings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, she does. And yeah. uh, but hey, you know, she's she's mostly and somewhat restrained on this record. So uh, more power to her. So uh, from here, we're now going to uh, go to a uh, to a country uh, folk chanteuse to anything but. Um, and, and by the way, this is now we are now in, in one side of the parallel universe called the parallel vault which means this album did not come out this year. It's in the parallel universe. This would have been a big thing, but it came out a few years ago. Right, Chris? Yeah, exactly. And so parallel yeah, we, vault. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, we do have a vault on this side. And uh, this week, there's actually a pretty good purpose for that. Um, we'll be talking about one of uh, the Curmudgeon Rock Report's uh, uh, favorite bands. We will always encourage you to check them out and uh, discover them. Built to Spell uh, from Boise, Idaho. Uh, the original they, BTS. Yeah, the the original BTS, indeed. And uh, they are in the uh, midst of uh, preparing to release their newest uh, record. I think it's going to drop this fall, but they've already dropped three songs uh, from it uh, on Spotify and, uh, and, and also on YouTube. And so you can go find those out there. They're actually the best songs they've done since 2006, uh, in my opinion. Uh, uh, easily, actually, the best stuff that they've done. Uh, since 2006, when they did the album You in Reverse, which is uh, a grossly underappreciated record uh, by them. So I guess, you know, we're building up to their new material. So let's take a chance or let's take the, the opportunity or a moment to look at their most recent record before this one, which uh, came out in 2018 and was titled Built to Spill Plays the Songs of Daniel Johnston. Now, what was that record about? So, uh, let's talk about this record a little bit. On the surface, you just would not think that Built to Spill and Daniel Johnston could be joined together as musical cousins. After all, the late and truly great Johnston uh, mostly mined in self-recorded or purposely lo-fi pop ballads with only the occasional rocker. Uh, these were rendered sweetly through jagged edges and untrained yet compelling vocals. He proved that even unclean genius called from a mental illness haze, could be very, very pretty. Now, speaking of clean versus unclean, on the other end of that spectrum, there is Built to Spill. Uh, this band is led by Boise, Idaho's Doug Marsh, uh, one of the greatest, most expressive guitarists ever to arise out of the Pacific Northwest rock and roll waters. Uh, BTS, our BTS, uh, renders its songs mostly as exquisite hard rock tunes driven by March's Prague-inspired riffs and stunning two or three guitar uh, lead guitar arrangements. Now, we'll be talking one about one of their best albums here uh, later on uh, in the episode uh, teaser there for you. But now, don't let the methods of delivery fool you too much here. The, here's the connector between uh, Built Spill and Johnston. We wouldn't really still be talking about March's instrumental, instrumental mastery three decades into his career, if he didn't write really, really strong songs. Now, almost all of these songs feature striking melodies and March's ethereal, dreamy stoner vocals that are pretty obviously inspired by Jane's Addictions and Perry Farrell. And so, and then maybe, judging by this record, uh, 2018's Built to Spill plays the songs of Daniel Johnston, 
He's also inspired heavily by Johnston, whose melodic gifts are revered by those of us uh, deep enough into the crates to care. Uh, March and his bandmates mostly play it straight on this album. Essentially, they take Johnson's unclean recordings and tune them up with some uh, studio professionalism. There is very little of the pounding angular riffing or lead guitar work you might expect. Rather, the band performs mostly as a trio and keeps the proceedings restrained and earnest. And when March does bring out the axe, it's only because Johnson did so first. Uh, The main examples of that on this record are Queenie the Dog, which is a downright jolly and jangly little tune, and the awesome banger Fake Records of Rock and Roll, which finds Johnston hilariously talking trash to store managers selling all the mainstream stuff. (laughs) On the latter, uh, March doesn't solo per se. He instead builds a lightning-fast layered cascade of guitar notes that build in volume and intensity as the song winds to its conclusion. Uh, Many of these songs were originally released by Johnston in the late 80s and early 90s, back when his cult following was just starting to broaden onto the music journalist slash tape collector radar. By then, he had achieved a command of the pop idiom that very few rock artists could match then and or have matched since. In playing it so straight and reverent, Built the Spill seems to acknowledge their place in that pecking order. Getting cute uh, or uh, relying on March's standard formula would have uh, really been a disservice. So, uh, therefore, check out this record, uh, whether you're intimately familiar with Johnston or just discovering his work. And either way, do yourself a favor and uh, listen to each artist's recording of each song back to back. It may be the most instructive thing you do over the course of the next two weeks. Arturo, your take. Yeah, um, I like this record. Uh, It's proof that uh, Doug Marsh can cover anybody, even (laughs) even Perry Como, and make it sound like Built to Spill. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Yes. (laughs) You know, uh, my only complaint with this record is that, and you mentioned like all the songs that he covered are from Daniel Johnston's late 1980s, early 90s period. Uh, Johnston's best stuff was his early 80s. Yeah, all those all those home recorded by himself in his in his in the basement of his home with a cheap piano and a cheap cassette recorder. Um, those are the best songs Daniel Johnson ever wrote. Those are the songs I wish Built the Spill would have covered instead of focusing on the lesser material of Johnston's later career. Um, yeah, I mean, w- 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 I'm a big Daniel Johnson fan. I think I think he's one of the greatest American songwriters of all time. Um, he's an outsider figure. He's outsider music, and he's he's definitely a cult figure, and he's worth checking out. And if you're going to check him out, start with 1981 Songs of Pain. That's where you should go. So at its heart, our show captures the kind of windy, bendy, yet somehow organized conversation that you would have heard in a living room in Astoria, Queens, back in 2000, and commits it to quote-unquote tape. I now live outside of Houston, and Arturo lives in South Korea. So we are a worldwide affair, which means we truly do try to rock your world. Anyway, on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, we do not do hot takes. We do honest takes. And we strive for the kind of depth and staying power that makes us just as relevant two years from now as it does today. We like to say we host the podcast made just for you. This belongs to you. Well then... Who are you? You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider 
looking for safe haven in a world where rock no longer predominates. Well, it sure as heck does on the Curmudgeon Rock Report. We not only celebrate the music, we live its majesty in full color and at full force. And we'd like to think that there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff you never knew before along the way. Think we're full of crap? Drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Have your own passionate thoughts? Become a member of our invite-only curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. And be sure to tell a friend or two or three about the wacky dudes imploring you to listen to lost and forgotten albums and complaining about just how bad British rock critics are these days. Really, they, they really are that bad. Now, let's return to our regularly scheduled programming. So, uh, before we uh, launch into uh, our first uh, discussion here on our 1997 revisitation, uh, let me uh, share uh, something that I read. Actually, I got this from a Pitchfork article. Uh, Pitchfork might have kind of a uh, so-so reputation, but they do they do run very, very good retrospective uh, album reviews of uh, albums from, I guess, now yesteryear. And I saw in one of their uh, reviews, actually a review of this record about the cover, uh, they say that Radiohead, if they had wanted to after the song Creep hit in 1993, they could have been, quote, the British Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah. But they became anything but that. Yeah. And spectacularly so, wonderfully so, and beautifully so. Uh, And the first time I think that everybody realized we were dealing with an uncommonly a uh, special band was with this album in 1997. Okay, computer, uh, art, talk yeah. about it. Yeah, before Radiohead released this magnum opus uh, in May of 1997, they were known primarily as that band that did Creep and the band that had a critically acclaimed yet moderately uh, successful second album, which is The Benz. Uh, once Okay, Computer hit the streets, that all changed. Uh, Beck went through a similar experience the previous year um, when his Odelay album wiped out the perception of Beck as a one-hit novelty wonder. With Radiohead, however, this was on another level. The critical adoration and plaudits that were showered upon the album from all over the world, really, were of a kind not seen since Nirvana's Nevermind. It's very, very rare for an album to not only be given instant classic status upon release, but to immediately be hailed as one of the greatest albums of all time when it's released. What's the short list? I guess what? The Beatles, Sgt. Peppers, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, Bruce Springsteen, Born to Run, The Sex Pistols, their one album, Nevermind the Bollocks, The Clash, London Calling, Sonic Youth, Daydream Nation. There may be a few others. Yeah, songs in the key of life, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Stevie Wonder, right, of course. Well, you can add Radiohead's OK Computer to that instant classic designation. Now, why was this album heralded as such? With most artists and or albums, you always you can always play a game of spot the influence. The wondrous, the wondrous thing about OK Computer is that you really cannot do that. At the time of its release, there had never been anything in the spectrum of rock that sounded remotely like Radiohead's masterpiece in terms of its innovative sounds, its startlingly original textures, and its spacious arrangements that gave it an orchestral feel. Lyrically, 
it isn't a concept album, but it feels like one with its overriding themes of humanity's dehuman dehumanization via its obsession with technology, computers, and consumerist complacency permeating every track. Uh, Singer-guitarist Tom York's previously tortured lyrics of romantic yearning and alienation transformed to tortured lyrics of fear, foreboding, and indictment of a society slowly losing its humanity and doing so willfully. While they weren't quite rock radio staples, at least in the U.S., anyone who calls themselves rock music fans should be familiar with the all-time classic singles, Paranoid Android, Karma Police, and No Surprises. I can sit here. I can sit here and describe these songs for you. But like several other specific albums we've covered in on this podcast, this is an album that you, you, the listener, should seek out and listen to as a whole from start to finish, the way Radiohead themselves intended it to be heard, not Spotify style by picking the quote unquote best tracks or having algorithms tell you what to listen to. Yes, as you can tell, I don't like Spotify. <laughs> uh, in fact, the lyrical theme of the album is antithetical to that kind of listening, if you think about it, right? It's about anti-technology, not pro. Uh, on a commercial level, OK Computer went to number one in the UK and the top 10 throughout Europe. In the US, it only went as high as number 21, which is Quite good, actually, considering how rock radio virtually ignored the album and its videos only got moderate airtime on MTV. But that doesn't matter. This is one of those albums where the critical adoration combined with the intense, huge indie hipster cult of fans that the album attained made it unbeatable in its ascension to all-time great status, eventually making it sell over 2 million copies in the U.S., that's double platinum in physical media parlance. Uh, the last thing I want to say about OK Computer is that it's apt that it came out in 1997, the final year of the fourth golden age of rock. I've often thought about this, and I wonder if Radiohead raised the bar so high for rock music as an artistic statement, and more importantly, for musical innovation, that virtually no other band or artist in the genre could reach it in the future. One could argue that Radiohead themselves reached that bar again with Kid A and Amnesiac, uh, those albums a few years later, but those were more along the lines of avant-garde electronica rock fusion. They weren't the classic rock album statements that OK Computer was or is. Uh, there have been a lot of great, in a few cases, all-time great rock albums in the post-OK Computer landscape. But all those albums and artists, ranging from Built to Spill to Slater Kinney to Wilco to The White Stripes to Green Day to Coldplay to Muse to my beloved Brian Jonestown Massacre, they all reference their forebears very strongly at best or wear their influences plainly on their sleeves at worst. It's safe to wonder if Radiohead effectively killed rock music as a viable pop cultural force by taking it so far beyond the stratosphere. Chris? Yeah, it's it's actually interesting because that's kind of the um, the gist of that uh, pitchfork review uh, that I mentioned. That this uh, this notion that uh, somehow uh, Radiohead kind of killed uh, art rock, or they it not killed, but this idea of uh, that the they they reached a level that you know obviously I do agree with the fact that in terms of event level concept conceptual uh, rock albums, 
yes, I, OK Computer is pretty much the end of that road, and there hasn't been anything that's been close uh, to that uh, to that since. Uh, it's interesting they they talk about and you talk about you know was this the the death of art rock itself? Uh, not really, in the sense of you know we say you know one of our tenets is there's more great music out there than there's ever been before. You just have to work harder to find it. Uh, but the problem is, is yeah, there's a lot of great stuff and a lot of meaningful stuff. It just doesn't have the budget that Radiohead and Nigel Godrich did uh, when they were making uh, this record. So there's nothing uh, even remotely as spectacular as this in terms of that sort of classic uh, guitar-driven uh, rock. Uh, you did say something that, you know, which is kind of interesting. I think you kind of caught yourself, too, that you referred to this album as, quote-unquote, its masterpiece. Uh, nope. Uh, the, that's the amazing thing. Now, when we heard this record back in 1997, did we think, gee, yeah, that's something they can top? No. No, no. And yet three years later, they did uh, with Kid A. Um, I will say this in terms of the old, just the standard orthodox guitar record. Uh, this is one of the most beautiful uh, I've ever heard. Uh, either of us has ever heard. Many of us uh, have ever heard. Uh, I mean, Johnny Greenwood uh, and Tom York, they just sort of reached a level uh, in their sophistication as arrangers, as players. Uh, and in terms of the the depth uh, of what they were doing, uh, that was just really just sort of extraordinary. I know that uh, they've said that they were listening to a lot of Miles Davis at the time. Uh, they clearly also were, I think, were starting to listen to like uh, DJ Shadow and some of those sort of uh, sort of clip uh, and uh, sample uh, type artists. I think that that starts uh, to sneak to sneak in here uh, uh, as well. So. And one, one thing to mention, and this, this became a legend, uh, w one of the things that uh, when this album came out, that uh, Capital, uh, their, uh, their label, they had this notion that this was going to be one of the great headphone records of all time. <laughs> and so what they did, and I, this is just ingenious, and this is legendary, when uh, they were uh, advancing the single Paranoid Android to the, the music press, what they did is they sent all these, you know, the, the, whoever was on that short list, you know, the Rolling Stone and the newspaper guys and the alt weekly guys, they sent them a Walkman with the tape glued inside of it. Mm. And so the idea is we are going to force you to listen to paranoid Android. And then whatever else was on that single, uh, it was like a two or three, uh, song single, uh, that we're going to force you to listen to it on headphones, which, <laughs> In the course of researching for this and preparing for this episode, reminded me, oh, yeah, it really is a good fucking headphone record. Uh, <laughs> like, like, it's one of the best headphone records ever. In, yeah. that in that case, it deserves the comparison to Pink Floyd. Yeah, and and it, it is one of those things where, yes, I mean, the obvious stuff, like there's Subterranean Homesick Alien and No Surprises, which, you know, through the headphones, you just, you know, you just feel the resonance in your guts there. But then I think where the headphones come in handy are for songs like Climbing Up the Walls, where mm. you, know, you, you really uh, can follow and really uh, dive into uh, and, and experience Johnny Greenwood's little uh, guitar lines, which are not primary in the mix. Uh, yeah. you, can, you can get those, and uh, they're wonderful, and they really just kind of help give that song uh, additional texture. So, yeah, uh, OK Computer is 25 years old. Um, I know quarter of a century old and that's the thing. And, and yeah, it did sell 4.5 million records worldwide. And 
there's been, like you said, there's been a lot of great rock records since then, you know, uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, Elephant. Uh, last few years, Kurt Viles had a couple of good records. Uh, you, your guy, Rock and Roll Jesus, uh, Ty Siegel. And so there have been some good records, uh, but you know, none, none on this scale and none better than this. So this really was kind of the end of the, uh, the album era and right before Napster too. And so right before exactly. Yeah. Yes. It, yeah, which exactly. Is, which is why you know, this is so fitting. The fourth golden age of rock ends in 97 Radiohead slams the door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, although for what it's worth, uh, I still am pissed at the labels, you know, because they had a chance to turn Napster into their subscription service when they tried to, you know, when they sued them and yeah. they, they said they didn't want to work together and that killed the music business. But at the same time, they were so set in their old ways, they weren't paying enough attention to some of the things that the artists were trying to show them. For yeah. instance, Radiohead and their promotion of Kid A, where uh, they've never officially said it, but it's pretty well uh, known or pretty well figured out that they themselves leaked Kid A onto Napster mm, uh, yeah, about, yeah. About, a month or, about a month and a half before the, the album hit the streets. I, I had it burned on a CD before the album actually came out. Yeah, I, I, I had it downloaded on LimeWire. I was listening to it a month and a half before the record came out too. And uh, lo and behold, record comes out and it sold a couple million copies. <laughs> right. So right. didn't didn't exactly have a uh, a chilling effect on its commercial viability. So right. just pisses well, me off. Well, yep. Chris, I, I would like to put a bow on this segment on Radiohead's sure. OK Computer by offering a contrast. I love sure. that record. You love that record. Anyone with good taste in rock music acknowledges the brilliance of OK Computer. But do you know who was always lukewarm on it? I, I have no idea. Tell me. The one and only Robert Criscow. Oh, his, Dean. In yeah. his 1997 review, uh, my favorite quote, my favorite Pink Floyd album has always been Wish You Were Here. And you know why? It has soul. That's why. It's Roger Waters' lament for Sid Barrett. Not my idea of a tragic hero, but as long as he's Roger Waters' hero, that doesn't matter. Radiohead wouldn't know a tragic hero if they were cramming for their A-levels. And their idea of soul is Bono, who they imitate further at the risk of looking even more ridiculous than they already do. So instead, they pickle Tom York's vocals in enough electronic marginal distinction to feed a coal town for a month. Their art rock has much better sound effects than the Pink Floyd snooze fest, Dark Side of the Moon, but it's less sweeping and just as arid. B minus. Ouch. Although he does have he does have a point about York uh, kind of aping uh, Bono. I, I will give him that. But otherwise, <laughs> ouch. And, and you know, uh, Bob, you're you're a terrific critic. And you, you basically you invented what uh, a lot of us uh either do or try to do, but man, sometimes you just get it wrong. And that's one of those instances. So, uh, now speaking of Chris Gow, actually, we say he got it wrong here. We are now about to enter a, uh, discussion, actually a, a multi-part discussion of a lot of albums that Bob did not get wrong. And a whole right. lot of people did not get wrong. Uh, we are, uh, going to, uh, dub the next, uh, two sections of the episode as what a great fucking year for us indie rock parts one and two. 
Chris, yeah. take take us to part one and the the monolith American indie rock albums of this year. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, uh, like we said, a tremendous uh, year for rock. Uh, I sincerely believe, and I think Arturo, you'd back me on this. Any respectable list of the top ten indie rock records of the of this golden age of this fourth golden age would have four of these records, and yeah. most especially these two. Yeah. I would put these two on the 10 best albums of the entire decade, um, mm-hmm. you know, just regardless of, of genre. And so let's get into this. We are specifically talking about Slater Kinney's Dig Me Out and Modest Mouse's The Lost, Lonesome Crowded West, uh, both masterpieces, both uh, among my favorite albums of all time. Uh, let us tackle Slater Kinney first. Not literally. Uh, that that would be uh, very uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be very me too ish. Uh, so sorry, gals. Anyway, let's talk about Slater Kinney. Spin Magazine outed Slater Kinney's brilliant guitarist Kerry Brownstein in 1999, and revealed that she had previously been in a romantic relationship with the band's brilliant singer and co-songwriter Corin Tucker. And the magazine confronted Brownstein with this scoop before she even had a chance to come out to her father. Mm. Uh, The episode revealed a few things. One, that that was the kind of expose social media BS celebrity journalism that was on its way and would become uh, very much an unavoidable thing by 2010. Two, uh, that being gay still carried the kind of stigma where revealing this personal information was treated as some sort of revelation or career-making scoop as a journalist. And three, that Slater Kinney's 1997 album, The Extraordinary Dig Me Out, struck a raw chord with a whole lot of people and made listeners want to learn and hear and uh, do so much and, you know, just know so much more about these women. Uh, Dig Me Out arguably is the most moving punk rock or punkish rock album ever made. Uh, At the time of its release, it was immediately moving because just in a sense of identity, no one had heard anything like this before. This was a thrusting, powerful set of rock songs that had a lot to say, said it remarkably well, and was done so by a collective of three women who did it so well, it even earned the respect of misogynist critics and fanboys. And then there was the richness and rawness of Dick Meow's themes. Uh, two major ones were apparent. First, there was the intimacy of romantic moments and the desperation to hold on to them. The album's best song, One More Hour, is heartbreaking in its awareness that a lovely thing is dying and in Tucker's powerful yet nuanced rendition of the lyrics. Uh, you know, we, you, know, you can hear that uh, very, very uh, strongly. The swinging Turn It On is a more volatile take on the same exercise. Uh, The Spin Outing episode actually makes it apparent that Tucker was addressing her uh, bandmate and co-writer Brownstein explicitly in those songs. Can you imagine how brutal that must have been at the time? Yeah. Secondly, uh, as far as themes, there was the process of reconciling the inner self with the outside world, uh, whether that means breaking free or just causing lots of trouble. Uh, The title track, uh, uh, Dig Me Out, finds Tucker imploring a lover to save herself from herself. Uh, Pretty powerful stuff there. It's one of the better album openers of this entire era. Uh, There's also the song, uh, The Drama You've Been Craving, uh, which is a hard-chugging dare. 
uh, you really want what's uh, underneath here? Well, ready or not, here it comes, bitch. Uh, now, more straightforwardly, there's uh, words and guitar. That's a plainer and yet still powerful take on this theme, uh, you know, using music uh, to unleash the beast, uh, so to speak. Uh, ultimately, uh, what makes the album a classic is how well all of that identity and how all of that thematic material is is performed, is actually performed uh, instrumentally uh, and musically. I mean, sure, it's all unique and different, but when these three musicians behind it are making among the fine, are, are basically this, it, when this music is being made by three of the finest craftsmen or craftswomen of the uh, the generation, well, uh, that's really what blows me away personally. Uh, Carrie Brownstein uh, is one of my favorite guitarists of all time. Uh, very few guitarists match her ability to extract the power and the beauty of her instrument simultaneously like she does. Uh, not kidding here, I think Pete Townsend is a close corollary in a lot of ways. Uh, it's not just the riffs or the energy. Uh, there's a form and a shape and a depth to her lead guitar lines that are instantly accessible and compelling. Uh, her playing absolutely engulfs and defines uh, these songs and their arrangements. Corin Tucker is a female rock singer with no peer. Uh, maybe others have prettier voices in the conventional sense, but Tucker's voice has a gripping explosiveness to it, and she captures the unadulterated emotions of every note she fills and of every word she sings. Uh, hers is a glorious instrument, and when it, she is at her best, she truly transcends the boundaries of the song. Uh, beyond One More Hour, uh, her strongest performance on this album is delivered on the closer, Jenny, on which it's hard to tell whether she's singing about a literal ghost or a figurative one, but either way, she makes the song that much more haunting. And then there's drummer Janet Weiss who took over the kit for Slater Kinney on this album. Uh, she wasn't there for the first two records. Uh, Weiss is quite tall, and she emits a, uh, a real intensity on stage. Uh, the physicality manifests itself in her drumming, which delivers a physical athletic wallop to accompany the emotional one. On Dig Me Out and subsequent albums, Slater Kinney projected as a band ready to rule the world. On my personal selection for the best albums of the 1990s, uh, Dig Me Out sits just below two Nirvana albums, basically. Uh, this should have been a monumental bookend to this fourth golden age, with Nevermind, of course, being the other one back there in 1991. Unfortunately, breakout commercial success eluded the band, which to me has always been criminal. At least the band's greatness and growing cult following did help it enjoy a more lucrative second run uh, that started in 2016 though the musical returns there are diminishing, which is something I never would have expected. Thoughts, Arturo? One thing about this album, Dig Me Out, is how cleanly produced it is. Sure. It, do it doesn't sound like a typical, typical of the time indie rock record. It's not, no, not It's not lo-fi. The guitars are clean and crisp. The drums sound like drums, you know. Yes. Um, you you can hear the vocals clearly, the lyrics cleanly. It, it's a it's not slick. It's not a slick record at all. Oh, not at all. But it's produced very cleanly. All, it it kind of reminds me of a 1970s classic rock album in that sense. It's got that sonic purity to it. Oh yeah, I mean that that that's the thing. I mean it's yeah, it's no bedroom recording. It's 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 got a richness to it that you know. Again, it's just it it's the kind of thing where the engineering helps it just blast out of the speakers. 
that, yeah. you know, I mean, like great music, like great albums like this, unless the music is just unbelievably just like, you know, from the heavens, like, you know, like Beethoven level special, yeah. uh, without the engineering, it ain't gonna, it ain't gonna blow you away out of a, out of a pair of subwoofers. You know what I mean? Right. right. So, well, speaking of albums that can blow you away. <laughs> yeah. Let us, let us move on, uh, to the second, uh, album, uh, in this, uh, in this here, uh, segment, the album, the lonesome crowded West by modest mouse. When you listen to early modest mouse, uh, the influences are pretty clear and pretty obvious. In the laziest uh, sense, combine Jane's Addiction and the Pixies, and you get Modest Mouse. But this band, uh, which hailed from Issaquah, Washington, a small town, it's a, basically a small town, about 40,000 people, uh, less than 20 miles outside of Seattle, uh, was much more than a stitching of influences, which also included hints of New Wave. Uh, Johnny Marr's tenure in the band a decade later uh, uh, kind of gives that one away. Yeah. Uh, turns out this band actually was truly special. I often say, as I ha- have on this podcast on numerous occasions, uh, that Pavement uh, became famous for making great music played badly. Uh, one could perhaps say the same thing about Modest Mouse. Though in Modest Mouse's case, the cacophonous banging and twanging and painfully rendered screams serve a purpose. The edginess and the inertia are the point, really which was never clearer than on Modest Mouse's 1997 masterwork, The Lonesome Crowded West. Ostensibly, the album is a satirical take on suburbanization of exurban and rural America at that time. But the album is really a meditation on loneliness. While Trailer Trash, for an example, finds band leader Isaac Brock uh, lamenting paper plates and trailer parks and plastic forks at various points, uh, in, in, in the lyrics, uh, it also finds him knee deep in regret and feeling lost after his high school years. It's like the movie dazed and confused without the cool soundtrack, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but the song's amazing mid-tempo arrangement in which bass and drums slither underneath Brock's overdubbed vocals and rich guitar tones, uh, reveals that this is a plaintive song, uh, that, uh, proceeds plaintively. Uh, if that, that's a thing, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's like this tense, almost stonerish, uh, mid-tempo song, but there's just a lot of meaning uh, uh, going on uh, there. Uh, another uh, example of the same thing that a lot of people, if you're familiar with, so you may not exactly think of it in the same uh, in the same vein. Uh, we're talking about convenient parking. Uh, hits us with a lot of weird imagery and a lot of noise art, but it's meant to express some uh, decent, uh, deeply resonant emotion. Uh, the song features, uh, you know, basically convenient parking uh, is, uh, it has, I think, the best uh, riff on the album. And uh, it's also uh, ex- just has this really exhilarating chorus uh, to it. Uh, it. The song really is a steadily pulsing story of concrete and pavement that won't stop spreading. Uh, which makes the chorus lyric, uh, quote, convenient parking is way back, weighing back, strangely moving. Uh, something is being lost even as Brock gains in aggression and his listeners find something unique, rocking, and awesome. Now, many of you know the Modest Mouse name. I mean, if you're not familiar with this album, you at least know that band. After all, it produced a major radio hit in 2004 with the magnificent preternaturally hooky anthem Float On. Uh, after Float On ascended, 
The band did enjoy several more years of modest success, during which, as I mentioned, the Smiths' Johnny Marr joined the band uh, full-time, an awesome endorsement if there ever was one. But I know uh, that Arturo and I agree that Isaac Brock, the songwriter, and Modest Mouse, the band, were never better than they were on the Lonesome Crowded West. Uh, I love this album. And again, like I said, it belongs on any credible list of the 10 best rock records of the entire 1990s. Arturo, your take. Yeah, um, I think this is one of the five greatest American indie rock albums of all time. The, the two the two points I want to make. Number one, you said one of the themes of this album um, is loneliness or meditation on loneliness. I think another really strong theme on this record is gentrification. Oh, absolutely. Uh, convenient parking hits you over the head with it. Yes. Uh, that's that, that song's about uh, gentrification. All throughout the, uh, the album, even um, Trucker's Atlas... Uh, uh, hints on that. A lot of the songs here really talk about how, you know, the countryside being, you know, replaced with shopping malls and lots of parking lots and basically yeah. America losing its soul in a way. Yeah. Uh, in, I mean, in, in, in a way, the other side of loneliness is alienation. And I think that, that that's yeah. really what that's talking about uh, for what it's worth. Even doing the cockroach uh, yeah. uh, uh, covers gentrification. It's like Isaac Brock is saying, I feel lonely and alienated enough living in a trailer park. <laughs> Putting a shopping mall in parking lots is going to make it even worse. <laughs> yeah, no shit. <laughs> yeah, that, that just sounds miserable. Yeah. 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 Anyway, and the other thing I want to say is that Radiohead got a lot of comparison to Pink Floyd. A lot of people say, oh, okay, computer is the dark side of the moon of the 90s. I would like to posit that Modest Mouse is the lonesome crowded West is the Who's Quadrophenia for the 90s, especially with the theme of, of the angst, youthful angst and alienation and loneliness and growing up and growing into a person that you really don't like. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what a lot of these lyrics, especially with a song like Polar Opposites, where Isaac Brock sings the lyric, I'm trying, I'm trying to drink away the part of the day that I cannot think away. Mm-hmm. That that is existentially angsty as it gets. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, In any lyric by any band or artist. Got kind of funny that you say it's uh, that I cannot think away. I always thought that he was saying sleep away until I actually read the lyrics. Yeah, me too. I always thought it was, I, I think sleep away would sound better. But anyway, yeah, yeah. think away is fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously sleep away is less clever, but it'd be more more profound. But hey, there you go. Uh, one small trifle uh, about one of our favorite records there. So. Uh, now, uh, like we said, that was part one. Uh, we, 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 we're originally going to try to do this all in one segment. Uh, no, couldn't do it. So Arturo, you get the, uh, the tricky assignment of covering everything else, including a couple of albums that if we were like, you know, a a five hour affair instead of a two hour one, we would definitely have gotten their own segments. So, uh, take it away, sir. Yes. The brilliance of modest mouses, the lonesome crowded West and Slater kidneys dig me out are enough to claim 1997, those two albums alone are enough to claim 97 as a banner year for American indie rock. But guess what? There's more. Uh, The number of five-star classic or nearly five-star classic indie rock albums from this year is staggering. Let's Let's do the roll call. What better way to start than with the defining American indie rock band of the decade? That is Pavement. Pavement's third masterpiece is the album, Brighten the Corners, where the band gets 
clean. Quote unquote clean in this clay in this case means fewer fuzzed out guitars, less noise, and less ramshackle rhythms. Clean, clear, shiny guitar tones abound, as do tighter rhythms and grooves that are on some tracks border on funk. The wonderful melodies that have always been at the heart of singer-songwriter Stephen Malkmus's songs are up front and center. And while his lyrics maintain their elliptical surrealism, they aren't as obtuse as usual, as the ups and downs of romantic relationships are what are on his mind at this time, which makes sense as the band members had just entered their 30s when this record came out. Stereo, the album's first single and opening track, rides an ever-so-pavementy, angular and quirky bass line with one of those aforementioned near-funk rhythms Lyric and, and lyrically it questions what Rush lead singer Getty Lee actually sounds like when he speaks. <laughs> and then it explodes into a crunching guitar, crunching chorus that's as grungy as the band ever got. Shady Lane continues Malkmus's ongoing penchant for unearingly catchy, slightly jaunty mid-tempo folk rock with some of his most nakedly emotional lyrics. Well, as emotional as he can get anyway. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, other songs like Transport is Arranged, Type Slowly, and Starlings of the Slipstream show Pavement's increasing facility with languid, lovely ballads. On a personal note, this album served as my gateway to Pavement back in the late 1990s. And while I usually recommend people to start with the band's first album, if you want to explore their discography, if only to see the band's progression, this is a rare case where working your way backward is a good thing if you're unfamiliar with Pavement's catalog. Chris? I kind of wish I had been 30 or 31 when I first heard this record, when this album came out. Yeah. Because it is a tremendous record about turning 30. I mean, that's, <laughs> re- you know, it really is. I mean, uh, you know, the album turned 25 this year, and uh, I know that uh, some uh, writers out there did their retrospectives, including Rob Sheffield, who we bag on a lot, but he is a really great writer, and he was good about, he was right about this record. I mean, in terms of that, um, getting your comeuppance and, and having that heartbreak and figuring out, Oh shit, I'm 30. I can't be a kid anymore. Uh, you know, the, the it's in Malcolm's own poetic way. I mean, this really just does capture the, uh, the, the process of that, especially stuff like shady lane. Um, I also kind of hear it. I mean, I love stereo only in the sense of, I mean, there, it's gotta be the most moving, uh, bridge chorus about quasars in the mist. Uh, you know, yeah. ever, ever written. So, all right. Now we move, we move on to one of this podcast's favorite bands built to spill and their excellent album. Perfect. From now on. Now, when Warner brothers signed built to spill to a major label contract off the heels of their 1994 indie masterwork, there's nothing wrong with love. It's fair to assume they expected more of the band's Neil Young meets pavement by way of Dinosaur Jr. sound. What they got instead was a dense, sprawling, spacey, psychedelia by way of progressive rock opus. Elements of those artists I just mentioned remained in the sonic brew from Perfect From Now On, but one underrated influence of singer-guitarist Doug Marsh that emerges on this album is the cosmic goth sensibility and layered guitar orchestras of Jane's Addiction. 
Oh, yeah. Randy describes eternity just unfolds like a blooming flower with layers and layers of wah-wah pedal guitars and expansive reverb. I would hurt a fly starts off as a haunting, almost menacing slow dirge of a lament with swelling cellos guiding the way before the song blasts off into a full band jam with some of the slinkiest, most elastic guitar sounds anyone has ever put on record. Uh, Made Up Dreams is a rarity, a multi-section prog rock ballad that unspools with one layer of shimmering beauty after another. Take yeah. that. Take that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tempos of all the songs rarely vary. But the richness and multiple levels of psychedelic splendor in each track make them unique and beautiful all their own. This album represents the middle point of Built to Spill's incredible hot streak of albums in the 1990s. Chris? The most striking thing about it is that Marsh uh, puts together these amazing three guitar, like three lead guitar arrangements. And uh, at least live, uh, I always was kind of amused that uh, when he would be up there with the other two guitarists, that Marsh would take the most boring part uh, yeah. for, for, you know, and the other two guys would get to go nuts with the slide guitars and the sort of the soaring uh, psychedelic uh, stuff. But that's the, like you said, there's a denseness, but there's a complexity to all of that, that, you know, putting those things together that, you know, this is not wankery, this is arrangement. And, you know, this is very deliberate uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that the A&R guys were probably like, what the fuck when they <laughs> hand, hand it in. And I think like the shortest song on the record is six and a half minutes long. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's eight minutes. It's, it's an eight song, like 55 minute record or something like that. It's, <laughs> it, it's, it's crazy. But, and for what it's worth, they probably got what they were expecting with the next record. Keep it like a secret, which is right. uh, one of the best albums. Uh, one of my favorite albums of all time. Uh, it's, I've probably listened to a thousand times in 25 years, but, mm-hmm. uh, Anyway, yeah, uh, perfect from now on. Uh, it's kind of like the like one of the great little brother records of 1997. It, uh, it didn't quite finish on the top of everybody, but it's one of those things that just grew on you and grew on you and grew on you and continued to grow on you. So there. Speaking of growing on you, the we have the Queens New York band Yola Tango and their album "I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One." Now, with the exception of a handful of songs, I've never really been a fan of Yola Tango that much. They've been around since the mid-1980s. To me, they always seemed like a wussed-out, cheap imitation of the Velvet Underground. Well, the sun shines on a dog's ass every now and then, and the sun (laughs) definitely shined on Yola Tango when they wrote and recorded this album. It's proof positive that even mediocre bands can have one good album in them, and in this case, even a perfect album. Not only is the songwriting the tightest and melodically catchiest of any Yola Tengo album, it's also the one that demonstrates their the most stylistic diversity and their, the widest range of moods and dynamics. The repetitive, snaky bass line of Moby Octopad drives what comes the closest the band ever came to funk. Sugar Cube is a wonderful slice of noisy, feedback-drenched guitar rock covering up an impossibly sweet bubblegum pop song a la peak period Jesus and Mary Chain and has a partner in the revved-up version of the Beach Boys' Little Honda. Um, Autumn Sweater is a sweet, sublime, organ-drenched ballad complete with percussive congas interspersed throughout. 
And the epic 10-minute spec bebop is the kind of hypnotic, improvisational, electronica meets jam band fusion that, shockingly enough, bands like Fish and the Disco Biscuits would explore in their live shows in the next decade. Wow, Disco Biscuits. I haven't heard that name in a long time. Uh, yeah. yeah, I can hear the heart beating as one is truly one of the essential albums of the fourth golden age of rock and pretty much all you need by Yola Tango. Chris? Yeah, agreed. I've always been kind of lukewarm on Yola Tango. This album is really good. Uh, it's a really, if there's such a thing, a really sexy indie rock record. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, like Moby Octopad, uh, for instance, I love that little bass line uh, on yeah. that, you know, this little thumping, uh, lurking bass line, really good stuff. Uh, one thing, uh, I won't talk too much about the record. Uh, I do want to point folks and listeners to uh, the video for uh, the song Sugar Cube, which is one of the best of all time. One of the best I've ever seen. It's funny as hell. Go on YouTube. Uh, yeah, do the search Yolo Tango Sugar Cube. It'll come up. Uh, this was uh, written and directed and, and conceived uh, along with the band by uh, David Cross and Bob Odenkirk, otherwise known as the guys from Mr. Shell. Mm-hmm. And uh, the concept is, that uh, the executives at Yola Tango's label is so pissed at them for not selling records, they are going to be sent to rock school to learn how to be a big rock band. And so there's a lot of like really funny shtick in it with, you know, Odenkirk is one of the professors dressed up as Paul Stanley uh, in, in full uh, makeup regalia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, 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 a poetry reading, like a super serious, pretentious poetry re- reading in British accent of rushes closer to the heart. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, you know, the best joke in it is what they call the uh, one of the I think it's David Cross is one of the professors says, here's the uh, the fog hat rule, which is the uh, the name of your fourth album shall be uh, be double underlined uh, on, <laughs> on the album covers. So just re- really, really funny stuff. It's worth you got to check it out. It's uh, yeah. Yola Tango. I'm lukewarm on them, but they had one good album and uh, they uh, put together along with the Mr. Show guys, a marvelously funny ass uh, video. All right. Speaking of even mediocre bands have a good one in them. The next one, apples and stereo and their album tone soul evolution. Now, along with Olivia tremor control, Olivia tremor control and neutral milk hotel apples and stereo were part of the Denver based uh, musician collective known as elephant six. Neutral Milk Hotel would go on to release the album that will become this scene's enduring all-time great masterpiece, which will be discussed in the next episode. However, in 1997, it was singer-guitarist Robert Schneider's band that put out the most memorable album from this scene. And it isn't surprising either. Apples and Stereo were by far the poppiest, most listener-friendly band of the of the bunch. Oh, yeah. L- like the Brian Jonestown Massacre, they mined the rock music of the 1960s to create a 1990s version of something that's unique to themselves. If they couldn't match a Jonestown's scope or breadth of vision, they were definitely more accessible. Think mid-60s Beach Boys meets mid-60s Birds with 90s-style indie rock guitars. That's apples and stereo. <laughs> uh, What's the number and shine a light are probably the purest examples of this dynamic. While the silvery light of a dream is an en- enchanting and entrancing piece of light psychedelic pop. Thankfully, they vary the sounds. Will come to be manages to convey stomping garage rock with a sweet touch, 
and Tin Pan Alley's wonderfully jaunty country rock, complete with circus organ. Uh, much like mm -hmm. Yola Tango with their great album of 1997, Apples and Stereo would never come close to being this good again, but at least they left us with this delightful piece of retro 60s pop rock that hasn't aged a bit since it came out. Chris? Yeah, it's a, it's a very well done, pretty uh, inconsequential, uh, uh, reverent uh, take on uh, on the 60s. Uh, it's worth mentioning that Robert Schneider is an interesting dude. So, like one, as you said, uh, we can give all credit to Mr. Schneider for uh, his engineering and producing skills, which uh, brought us, uh, in large part, was responsible for that neutral milk hotel uh, masterpiece that we will be talking about in the next uh, next episode. Stay tuned. Uh, but he's also interesting in the sense that uh, he, after a while, he he's a PhD in mathematics. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you knew about this, but he he went back to school like 15 years ago. He got a PhD in mathematics, and now he's a he's a lecturer at the University of Georgia. Uh, he's a, basically he's a math professor, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, so the guy behind apples and stereo turns out to be like a genius level math guy who now, you know, is like, you know, all kinds of, you know, like theoretical, uh, like math, which yeah. you know, I, I, there was some story that I read, like some, uh, magazine story where he was like comparing, you know, being a, a music, a musician or a producer, that kind of thinker there with being a mathematician, basically it just, you know, you're just playing with like you know, you're, you're, you're playing with letters and numbers and arranging the universe. And so it's just kind of a, kind of a fascinating thing. So, uh, keep it up, Mr. Schneider, uh, and, uh, keep teaching those kids math. <laughs> well, speaking of mathematical musicians, this guy kind of is on his guitar, the, 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 the genius and a virtuoso Jay Mascus and his band dinosaur junior with their album from 97 handed over. American alternative rock royalty. Uh, that's what Dinosaur Jr. is. According to Jay Mascus, it's his favorite of the band's major label albums. Personally, I think it's the second best album in their entire discography. Unfortunately, it got overshadowed by the plethora of great indie or alt-rock albums that came out at the time, and it didn't have anything resembling a rock radio hit, unlike their previous couple of albums. It only sold 34,000 copies in the U.S., but that shouldn't dissuade anyone from delving into this overlooked gem of an album. Uh, Mascus's father had recently died before the recording of this record, and the lyrics throughout have some of the most personal and emotional lyrics of any Dinosaur Jr. album. If we could retrograde our curmudgeonly parallel universe Nothing's Going On would have been a major rock radio hit with its perfectly constructed chord progression, understated riff, and sublime melody. Sure Not Over You shows yet again that no one can combine heartbreaking, emotional yearning with sympathetic guitar fireworks like Mascus can, although Built to Spill's Doug Marsh may have something to say about that. Sure. Uh, this being a Dinosaur Jr. album, you cannot escape the obligatory Neil Young-esque, long, slow-burning, grungy guitar freakouts. And Mascus doesn't disappoint with Alone. Throw in the gorgeous pop rock of Mick and how the crunching riffarama of I Don't Think is underscored by Mascus's pleading falsetto vocals. And you have a terminally underrated album that deserves its due as one of Dinosaur Jr.'s best. Chris? Yeah, I've always sort of been lukewarm on this record. I mean, essentially, 
because you got to remember this is 97, which is, you know, following closely at just a few years removed from uh, the breakout success of Start Chopping, you know, the yeah. song Start Chopping. Well, I'll, I've always kind of felt like listening to this record, it's kind of like Start Chopping parts two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of in that aesthetic, in that same vein. And it's, it, I don't know, it gets a little, I don't know, there's just not enough range to it for me. I mean, you think about that band that, you know, those uh, first couple albums that they did back in the late 80s, which basically invented, uh, I mean, it's basically like grunge progenitor and it's like one yeah. of the more innovative records of the era. It wasn't really, Mascus wasn't really doing what he was doing. Uh, on this record back then. So it's kind of weird because I was, I was familiar with these records here from like 92 to 97 in that period before I was familiar with sort of the seminal stuff. And I'm like, what the fuck, you know, where's the, you know, you know, where's the virtuosic stuff? Where's the, like the weird kind of, you know, like over the top uh, produced uh, riffs, you know, where's that, you know, yeah. you know, it's just kind of, I don't know. I, again, to, so to me, I much prefer that stuff. And, you know, start chopping is lightning in a bottle. This stuff, meh. I still go, nothing. nothing's going on. If you're listening, look it up on YouTube or Spotify. It's one of Mascus's 10 best songs, and I stand by that one. Oh, okay. Anyway, speaking of another artist that I stand by and always have, always have been standing by, the Brian Jonestown Massacre and their 1997 album, Give It Back. From the mid-90s to the end of the 2000s, or the naughties, I should say, Anton Newcomb was on a creative role matched by very few in the world of rock. And this album is one of the highlights of that hot streak. If you condense the heavy, tripped out, hypnotic psychedelia of their satanic majesty's second request, the inspired garage rock bliss of Take It From The Man, and the country folk hoedowns of Thank You For, Thank God For Mental Illness, put them all into one album, you'll get something like Give It Back. Opening track, Supersonic, with a hyphen in the middle, not to be confused with the Oasis song, is, in my opinion, one of the all-time great album openers with its trancey, loping, psychedelic swirl. It's the type of song that makes you feel high just listening to it. The jingle-jangle, very Birdsian folk rock of This Is Why You Love Me is delivered with a spiky cocaine attitude. The one-two punch of Malila and Salam starts with sitar-drenched country blues and segues into a delightful slice of rolling classical Indian music. The tension-filled, soft-slash-crushing-release-loud dynamic of the track Sue is given a foreboding menace with the lyric, she tries so hard to stop her pain as she sticks a dirty needle into her vein. It sounds like Velvet Underground era Lou Reed after spending a drugged out night listening to Nirvana. (laughs) Uh, The the obvious single from the record, Not If You Were the Last Dandy on Earth, is a lyrical swipe at their rivals at the time, the Dandy Warhols, but musically sounds like a raunchier, even more debauched send-up of Oasis's anthemic pop rock. It's a nearly perfect album and one of the most consistently great discographies in postmodern American rock and roll. Chris? Yeah, I'll, I'll keep this one short. Uh, British as fuck. Uh, yeah. You know, for, for a California band, that's pretty neat. So now we're going to do uh, a shorter, much shorter version of pretty much the same exercise. Spe- uh, speak, speaking of British as fuck. 
Yeah, exactly. So uh, one of the uh, hallmarks of 97, if we're going to talk about it in, in a more sort of journalistic uh, form, it wasn't, there was the return. This was a good year. This was a, a very important uh, year uh, for British contribution. I know that we've talked about with, you know, with Britpop and that was a big thing. But this year, not only did you have like the Spice Girls thing uh, and sort of the, the, the sort of the the radio pop uh, thing coming back or the bubblegum pop thing uh, coming back. You also had the, uh, the bursting forward of mainstream EDM rock. Uh, you know, not the trip hop stuff of uh, Portishead and tricky. We're actually talking about like stuff that like, you know, sold records and were you know, like had like big hits, but were actually done by like, like DJ dudes and uh, like house music uh, guys. So, Let's start this. So, yep, uh, these acts may have cut their teeth in dance clubs, but these albums all unquestionably belong under the rock and roll label. Hell, the Prodigy's blazing hot single, Smack My Bitch Up, features what may have been the best quote-unquote riff of 1997 and perhaps featured the coolest sample, too. Uh, That is the legendary Cool Keith telling us to smack my bitch up on the chorus. Come to think of it, 1997 is arguably the year where that became a mainstream thing, the electro riff accompanied by the vocal sample. Uh, that became you know, a more common thing. You know, By the time we get to like Kanye, uh, that's all over the place. Anyway, want more proof of just how connected to Rock's evolution these EDM albums were? The other hot radio single of that year from among these albums uh, was the Chemical Brothers' Setting Sun. That song features a vocal from Oasis's Noel Gallagher, possibly the most beloved person in all of Great Britain at that point. And he certainly was its biggest rock star. Now, if there was a number two on that big British rock star list in 1997, there's a good argument to be made that it was the prodigy's Keith Flint. Uh, Keith Flint was a club kid who somehow made the Hawaiian punch guy hairstyle cool. Uh, you know, seriously, one could dub that thing a permed reverse mohawk. Uh, same deal for the heavy eye shadow, uh, nose and tongue piercings, and large torso tattoos. Uh, it wasn't just the style infusion that made Flint uh, a guy who mattered, though. It was the attitude, and in a few surprising instances, uh, his vocals uh, that made the difference. Uh, Flint may have been the least musically involved member of the Prodigy, really. I mean, if you if you want to make a comparison, he pretty much was the Prodigy's uh, version of Flavor Flav. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was. From, from Public Enemy. He was basically their hype man. Uh, yet, uh, if we look at the this album, The Fat of the Land, uh, what are the most memorable earworms on it? Uh, the first one would be uh, Flint's cockneyed uh, performance of the chorus to Firestarter. And then after that would be his cockneyed performance of the chorus on the song Breathe. So uh, if Flint was the look and the feel of the prodigy, uh, who was responsible for the meth-level energetic guitar-driven sound? Uh, That would be Liam Howlett, who was a classically trained pianist as a kid, who as he grew up discovered hip-hop and continued his explorations of the UK underground, which, yes, included the burgeoning club culture and latter-day goth rock scene. Howlett developed uh, his hard-edge style over the course of several years before The Prodigy effectively broke out in 1994 with Music for the Jilted Generation, also a very good album. But it is on the fat of the land where Howlett found his most absorbing and electrifying voice. 
Uh, the album is intense and despite the guitar boogie and relentless tempos is often hypnotic. Uh, that is especially the case on album standout Narion, a shuffling, spooky splice of psychedelia featuring vocals from Kula Shocker's underappreciated frontman Crispian Mills. That dude was legit at the acid rock thing. Uh, sadly, uh, Keith Flint committed suicide in 2019, and he went out as hard as he seemed to live. Uh, according to news reports from a few years back, it took a while for the coroner to determine whether the hanging or the drug overdose was the actual cause of death. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, he, I guess he, he was not in a good place. But uh, Howlett, uh, Liam Howlett, is still alive and well, and so is his career. Uh, the Prodigy last released an album in 2018 titled No Tourists. Uh, Howlett is also scoring movies these days, which, uh, given the whole incredibly shrinking album royalty thing, seems like a good idea. Uh, never mind that, though. Uh, check out The Fat of the Land, inarguably one of the primary sounds of the spring and summer of 1997. Arturo, your thoughts? I've never been a fan of The Prodigy, really. I, mean, I like the singles of this, off this album. The singles are seminal uh, singles. And also, I'll smack my bitch up. Yeah, <laughs> the other the other hit off this record, um, but to me, most of this album is kind of a monotonous and same sounding. It doesn't have the depth, the breadth, and the scope, and the diversity, and really the beauty of the next album you're going to talk about, which yeah. I think is arguably the greatest techno album of all time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and like I said, I, I as kind of like pop like event records goes. I mean, like I said, the Prodigy is basically EDM as like rock. And like riff rock. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very good. Uh, but it wasn't quite as good as the chemical brothers, uh, dig your own hole. So let's talk about, uh, the chemical brothers, dig your old, uh, hole, uh, own hole here. Uh, I won't go quite as long here, but there's a lot to say. And in, in, in any case, so you've got two dudes, uh, who are also from the UK, whose productions were uh, definitely more sophisticated, more urban, and more traditionally housey than the prodigies. Uh, but hey, their output managed to rock just as hard, uh, just as cocaine and weed can sometimes take you to the same place, or actually, in this case, more likely a large, large dose of acid. Uh, go figure. Uh, yeah. And, and ecstasy. Don't forget ecstasy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We are, we are talking about, we, we're not that far removed from the whole Manchester thing. We are talking about ecstasy. So, uh, the partnership of Ed Simons and Tom Rollins burst forth into the mainstream on the strength of two huge and slamming singles. Uh, there was block rock and beats, uh, which threw a swirl of fat bass grooves, twisting and winding synths, and a vocal sample from the mighty early hip hop God, Schooly D, uh, grows more entrancing as it unfolds. Uh, and then there's the uh, aforementioned Setting Sun, which doesn't sample the Beatles' Tomorrow Never Knows, but interpolates the living shit out of it. Uh, beyond uh, Noel Gallagher's uh, floating vocals, uh, there are also Eastern-influenced instrumental samples and influences. Uh, think India, especially. And that's really kind of uh, something that you could say about this record. It's It's very, very exotic. And, uh, I also just, there's a, like you said, there's sort of an arrangement. There's a, there's an intelligence to what these guys are doing that you would say, wait a second, these guys are a DJ or, you know, these guys are console, uh, uh maestros. I mean, there's a real energy, uh, here, but a sophisticated energy, not quite as sort of man of the people as, as the prodigy, uh, would have been ultimately, uh, the chemical Brothers' success was a, to me was a product of right place, right time and right collaborators, 
Sure. I mean, Dig Your Own Hole, uh, it was released a little bit before Fat of the Land, uh, but really kind of in terms of its huge success, broke out second. Uh, I guess it was a good time to be an EDM maestro uh, that rocked, you know? So, uh, and then there also was that Noel Gallagher Association too. So Simons and Roland uh, followed Dig Your Own Hole with what I think is actually a better record, uh, 1999 Surrender. Really? Uh, I, I like that record a lot. I don't think it's anywhere near as good as Dig Your Own Hole. Oh, I mean, it's just, there's a, I don't know, there's just an electricity uh, to that record that, or just, I don't know, it, it there's a vibe to it or a, it, it, it hits harder. For, it has for a more, it has a, it has a more disco influence. Surrender yeah. has more of a disco thing. Yeah, it's it, more of a disco influence and there's you know, a lot of like, kind of like weird stuff going on with the drums on that record, which I've always thought were, uh, were kind of, uh, were kind of cool. Uh, so, you know, from, from that record, I think probably their most, probably their most popular single comes off of that let forever be, uh, which, uh, found them mining quite literally the same territory as, uh, setting sun, uh, with, uh, Noel Gallagher and, uh, the late period Beatles appropriation returning to the mix. Al- album is definitely tr- worth checking out, uh, as well. Uh, after that, they kind of, uh, dropped off. Uh, they haven't released a record since 2019, and haven't really made a uh, whisper in the mainstream uh, since, like, basically 1999. But back in 1997, the Chemical Brothers repped for the British dance scene in a more orthodox but just as aggressive uh, fashion. Uh, give me some thoughts about uh, the Chemical Brothers. Dig your own hole, Arthur. They're still they're still a big live draw. Like they still tour. Oh, and sure. They bring up, they, they pack in a lot of people. They have a strong following. Like I said earlier, I think it's the greatest techno album ever made, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, to me, that it's the Sergeant Peppers of techno. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a perfect record, and um, yeah, honestly, it's one of the albums that got me into electronic music and EDM. Uh, it's yeah. kind of, it was kind of that was my gateway record for EDM on a personal level. Yeah. But I also th- I also think objectively, it's just a beautifully crafted, just oh, sure. beautifully beautifully flowing record. It, it moves like a rave. It flows like an actual rave show would would flow it's one of the gorgeous things about it yeah yeah hey yeah the 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 strange thing about that record is i also vibed on that record like all summer and fall of 1997 i loved that record uh but then like i said uh, so i liked surrender and i guess maybe it was because i was at the beginning of one of my old careers uh in rock rock and roll journalism uh, so I kind of remember it there, but also I, th- basically Moby's play came in and, and kind of replaced that as the techno go-to record, uh, for yeah. me. So it's kind of strange. I was all about this record and you're right. It is damn near perfect in terms of its arrangements and, and energy, but, uh, but play, uh, far out did it. I would say that that's the best uh, techno rock record ever made, uh, Moby's play. Uh, I know you probably vehemently disagree, but that's, I'm not, I'm not a fan of Moby at all. I've never liked that record, but that that's another discussion. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and, and in, in a way, I, I guess we're not supposed to talk about Moby anymore because he turned out to be a sexual harassment creep. So oh, there we go. <laughs> oh, well. And, uh, finally it, it's worth a brief discussion on, uh, Daft Punk and homework. And it's, it's kind of funny how like the one act in this 1997 EDM rock, uh, breakout rush that got the least daytime rotation on the MTVs of the world. Uh, this is the one, this is the act that went on to form the strongest and most indelible legacy. Uh, yeah. this, this is the band that, you know, mattered, uh, for the long term. you know, in overall. So, uh, Daft Punk dropped this album homework here in 1997, uh, which gave the world a preview of the tremendous 
and tremendously influential sci-fi uh, uh, sort of spiked in uh, output that was to come. Uh, the early returns were mostly raw and you know mostly sort of you know underwhelming. But homework did include a few gems, uh, most especially the relentlessly trippy robotic groove of Da Funk, you know, literally spelled D-A space funk, Da Funk. Uh, I remember thinking in 97 that Daft Punk was just a gimmicky band, uh, what with all that uh, robot outfit uh, stuff and, uh, you know, kind of the the imagery. But I was most certainly wrong. Uh, by the time they released 2013's Random Access Memories, one of the best albums of the last decade, uh, these guys have grown to become uh, one of the best bands in the world of any genre. Uh, by then, they had figured out uh, how to add an organic sense of romance to the icy industrial framework of their songs. But of course, having Nigel Rogers play on a lot of the songs, play guitar on a lot of the songs on that album kind of helped too. But still... Anyway, Art, uh, your take on Daft Punk. I'm the exact opposite of you when it comes to Daft Punk. I like the earlier stuff more. Uh, to me, I think Homework is a masterpiece. I think it is basically a 1990s update of 1980s Chicago house music. Mm -hmm. uh, this is very much a house music oh, album. Yeah. yeah, Chicago and house is big time. That's why Kanye wanted to work with them because he understood, these guys understood Chicago house better than any of these other bands. And, and I think Homework is a dazzling masterpiece of it. I think it's by far to this day still their best album. I don't like later period Daft Punk. I don't like the cheesy poppiness of it. Although I do like Random Access Memories because it's got a very strong disco plus Giorgio Moroder feel to it, which oh, yeah. I like, which I enjoy. But aside from Random Access Memories, I'm not a fan of anything else. Doth yeah. Punk is done in the 21st century. I like I like my Doth Punk hardcore raw techno that they were in the 90s. Arturo and I now both use the same microphone, and what a darn good mic it is. If you've been with us for a while, you might notice we don't sound nearly as crappy or as clueless as we did in our first episode back there in January 2021. We're maturing, man. If you have any inkling to launch your own podcast, we recommend using the Ars Technica 2100X USB. It's a high-quality cardioid mic that helps limit ambient noise and echo and also gives a richness to your voice that you just won't get from a cheaper model. And its USB attachment allows you to record conveniently using your laptop and software like Zencaster the excellent program we use to record ourselves natively from Texas and South Korea. It's as close to a super souped-up XLR system you can get for about 100 bucks. Find this Ars Technica gem on Amazon, or perhaps ask a locally-owned music store to send you in a more indie direction. And now, hey, welcome back to Oasis vs. Blur. The next round. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And probably the last round. Uh, the best rivalry in British rock involving two of the country's best bands of the decade seemed to end with, when the mammoth success of Oasis's What's the Story Morning Gory crushed that of Blur's The Great Escape in 1995 through 96. It effectively did so. But 1997 provided a postscript where Blur landed one more meaningful jab before Britpop receded into the annals of rock history. 
Let's start with Oasis. In the U.S., the band's 1997 album, Be Here Now, was a widely anticipated follow-up to a huge breakthrough album. In the U.K. and throughout Europe, however, the anticipation and lead-up to the release of Be Here Now was a pop-cultural event, the likes of which were reserved only for artists like the Beatles in the 1960s or Michael Jackson in the 1980s. Commercially, at first, it was a blockbuster. It debuted at number one in 15 countries Hmm. throughout the UK and Europe, including all four Scandinavian countries, and even went to number one in Zimbabwe. Nice. Yes, Zimbabwe had Oasis fever. Uh, It debuted in the top three in nine other countries, including Japan, Malaysia, and of course, the US, where it topped off at number two. Critical reviews, again, at first, were quite glowing. Q Magazine called it, quote, cocaine set to music. (laughs) And both both Rolling Stone and the Los Angeles Times gave the album high praise. Over time, though, and rather quickly, really, all that changed. Be Here Now sold over 8 million copies worldwide, but the vast majority of those sales were within the first two weeks. Commercial response to the record, uh, both among casual music fans and Oasis fanatics, grew to be quite tepid as none of the album's singles really took off in a meaningful way, except for the UK, where two of the singles hit number one. Critical reaction started to really sour on the album, and I mean really sour, both in the UK and abroad. It got to the point where the inevitable anti-Oasis backlash finally arrived. Now, why was Be Here Now a critical and somewhat commercial disappointment? Let's make an honest assessment. First, some of the songs are just way too long. Yep. Uh, all, all around the world, one of the first songs guitarist Noel Gallagher ever wrote for the band, but finally included on this album, goes on for nine minutes with the chorus slash refrain repeated past the four and a half minute mark again and again, and again, <laughs> with only a silly key change to a higher register being the only variation. Which is why I hate it. I know. The yeah. song is followed by another overly song, It's Getting Better Man, again, overstaying its welcome at the 4.30-minute mark by repeating the chorus again and again and again. <laughs> uh, second... Many of these overly long songs are made even longer by the incessant need to overdub as many long guitar solos as possible. The album's lead single and lead track, Do You Know What I Mean, is is smothered by one guitar solo after another, aspiring to a series of crescendos, forgetting that the point of the music is to build to just one solid crescendo. (laughs) Uh, Third, As Noel Gallagher himself once stated in an interview, where the hell's the bass? And several tracks, the bass track seems to just disappear from the mix for no reason. In later years, producer Owen Morris confessed to rampant cocaine use, no shit, and constant constant arguing among the band members, no doubt mostly between Noel and his sibling lead singer Liam, being big factors in the lack of quality control. The band also felt pressure from their record label Creation, which at the time was a subsidiary of Sony, to come up with a follow-up 
to watch the story Morning Glory as soon as possible, when the band probably needed some time off to decompress. Both Morris and Noel Gallagher himself in various subsequent interviews throughout the years even admitted as much. Nevertheless, 25 years after the fact has provided ample time for revision and reconsideration. Is Be Here Now really the disaster that some fans and most critics purport it to be? On a commercial level and in regard to Oasis's fortunes and reputation, sure. As uh, and Andre Lukowski once wrote on the web, in the website Drowned in Sound, quote, although Oasis as a band would continue, Oasis as a legend died with Be Here Now. That's fair. Yet, yeah. Yet, if you take a surgical scalpel and dissect the record as a whole, you'll find a lot that is redeeming. Trim some of the song lengths to about half their length, edit out some of the superfluous solos, and clean up the mix so that the bass doesn't disappear. And you'll find some terrific songs, many of them among Noel Gallagher's best and certainly better than most of Oasis's 21st century output. I maintain that The Girl with the Dirty Shirt is one of the most beautiful, fluid, soulful, pure love songs Gallagher ever crafted uh, with his image fragment lyricism working especially well here and better than usual. I Hope I Think I Know is sublime pop rock with a melody most songwriters would pimp their mothers for. Uh, My Big Mouth has an awful muddied production, but a proper cleanup and remix would reveal one of the band's most raging rockers. And I'll go to my grave thinking Don't Go Away is one of the few perfectly recorded tracks on the album and one of the most heart-tugging, emotionally resonant ballads Gallagher ever wrote. Even the songs that I mentioned earlier as being overly long or having excessive guitar solos would, would be great tracks with some studio nip and tucking. This isn't quite like Metallica's St. Anger album, which has been ravaged by fans and critics throughout the years, but has, in recent years, seen a groundswell of retrospect support via internet blogs, social media, and even some podcasts, including this one. Yes, indeed. Uh, I understand that, aside from some hardcore Oasis fans, I'm a bit on a very forgiving island with Be Here Now. It's a flawed, indulgent, druggy mess of an album that could have been great with some better stewardship. Chris? Yeah, indulgent is the right word. Uh, It's like, uh, you know, they really walk the fine line beautifully between pop and rock. I mean, intense rock, but also, you know, very poppy. And so they kind of mixed the hybrid. Here, it tilts like way more towards their poppy kind of, uh, you know, like like overly... what would you call it? Lofty melodies. Right. Right. There's some really cheesy shit on this record, like all around the world. Yeah. I can't stand it. Uh, I love, do you know what I mean though? That song is kick ass. Um, Sure. Really well written, really well played and has the best sample of the drums from straight out of Compton uh, ever, (laughs) ever used. Uh, But here's something that's curious. Now I'm sitting here and with my computer in front of me and I'm looking at Spotify and, and sort of the stats. And I always kind of pay attention to the number of plays, uh, you know, uh, that, uh, are uh, generated in Spotify. Number one, uh, most played song on this record from Spotify stand by me. Huh? 
easily. I like that. I like that song. Yeah, it's a pretty good song. Uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those sort of you know like Noel Gallagher, you know, master of you know master of the art form. But 170 million uh, uh, plus uh, plays. Second most. Don't go away. Love that song. Yeah, uh, 74 million uh, 700. So. The uh, the two most popular songs on this record, in terms of like you know, that might, might be the legacy of the record that you know folks hate it, but the album cuts seem to you know, be more resonant with the youngins than the two singles, uh, which in one case is a good thing, but you know, just seeing that you know, do you know what I mean? Only has twenty six million plays in comparison. Yeah. And remember right. that that was the song that they came rushing out of the gates with. I mean, yeah. If I remember this correctly, the video for that was a riff on the old Beatles rooftop concert shtick. Right. And I, I remember it was like this huge, huge event. It was it really was a great song. But like then, like you said, within like a, a year, the album like sunk like a stone turd, you know, like, yeah. a, like a concrete turd to the bottom of the ocean. So I don't know. Like, again, I, I think it's a three-star record. Uh, there's like just way too much of that. Like you said, long, cheesy shit on it for Mike. Good. But the few good th- songs are really, really good and on a par with uh, the stuff from the, the, the two albums before it. So there you go. Well, the, their rivals, Blur, uh, what were they up to around this time? Well, as far as Blur are concerned, they were in a dark place in 1996. They followed up the monumental success of 1994's Park Life album with a very good and successful album in 1995's A Great Escape, but it paled in comparison to the Leviathan that was Oasis at the time. The latter, Oasis, uh, were deemed as working class heroes who convincingly won the Britpop War and Blur were painted in the music media as upper middle class twats who were somewhat inauthentic. No doubt this gnawed at the band, and it even went as far as to create internal conflict over their own identity and musical direction. Guitarist Graham Coxon started drinking excessively, which would lead to problems a couple of years down the road, and frontman Damon Alburn started abusing heroin, according to interviews Alburn has given in recent years. Uh, Salvation would come, however, in Coxon's shifting musical tastes. In interviews throughout 96, Coxon revealed his increasing interest in lo-fi, underground, American indie rock, citing bands like Pavement, Sebado, Sonic Youth, and even Beck. No doubt, Auburn knew the band was in desperate need of a creative rebirth and a shift away from Britpop, and pretty soon he started echoing Coxon's predilection for gnarlier, dirtier, guitar-driven rock. Park Life producer Stephen Street was back on board to produce what would become known as their self-titled album, and the band members uh, were the same, but that's all that was the same uh, when they reconvened to record the record in summer through fall of 1996. As the chief songwriter and lyricist, Damon Alburn abandoned the observational character sketches of the previous three albums and began writing words that reflected his own life, his own experiences, his own feelings, and no more projections onto fictional characters. Musically, however, make no mistake that this is Graham Coxon's album through and through. In overall sound, mood, guitar textures, and even aesthetic, this album is all about Coxon's submergence in the fuzzy, scuzzy neither world of noisy 90s American indie rock. 
Beetlebum starts the album with a grungy, menacing, mid-tempo lurch that combined with Auburn's soulful, sensitive croon addressing his own drug problems in the second person comes across like something akin to John Lennon backed up by pavement. Uh, Song 2 was the album's worldwide smash hit and most famous song. Casual fans like you may be listening know it as the... That song <laughs> that blasted out of sports stadiums for years afterward. And it sounds like a scuzzed up, cranked up, even more punked up Sebado injected <laughs> with, New- with New York Dolls sleaze. Uh, the acoustic country blues of Country Sad Ballad Man sounds like an ode to pre-Odelay Beck that gets devoured in the end by Coxon's dirty lo-fi guitar raunch. Thick, Heavy guitars permeate everywhere, man. Chinese Bombs is practically a parody of hardcore thrash punk. M.O.R. sounds like a romping homage to Mott the Hoople with a, <laughs> chorus me- with a chorus melody borrowed from David Bowie's Boys Keep Swinging. Yeah, good call. On Your Own is a catchy pub sing-along mutilated by Coxon's guitar squalls. The subterranean trip-hop groove of Death of a Party predicts Auburn's post-blur project Gorillas, And You're So Great, the only song Coxon sings and wrote the lyrics to, uh, is a deep, deep lo-fi, intentionally crappy-sounding ode to Guided by Voices. <laughs> Blur's self-titled album kicked off Blur version 3.0. It's the album that saved Blur's career. It saved them from Britpop. It gave them the freedom to get even more experimental and out there in the future. And hey, it's much better than Oasis's Be Here Now. In fact, I put it up there with Park Life as one of the essential albums of the fourth golden age of rock. Chris? Yeah, certainly much better than Be Here Now. And it's the album without which we wouldn't have Gorillaz. Uh, because yeah. because it kind of gave Alburn the sort of the commercial wind uh, that he needed for uh, for that uh, much better record than the Great Escape I think uh, I've never been a huge fan of the Great Escape I think that the Kinksian thing had kind of gone a little off the rails by then but this album like I said this album's got some really strong stuff like you said you know Coxon doing a lot of like weird cool uh, uh, even kind of white boy funky uh, kind of stuff here. You know, song two obviously is great. I, I've always loved M.O.R. I love that little skittering uh, guitar uh, yeah. intro, which, which it almost yeah. like electro. And then it's like that. And then you get kind of like, you know, the uh, the, the Beach Boy kind of harmony kind yeah. of stuff. On yeah. it. it's, it's a fun song. Yeah. So, yeah, it definitely I, I, I think if you were to close out the Britpop era, uh, this was one way to do it. I mean, this kind of like of these bands, well, Radiohead, obviously, but beyond that, this is the the band that kind of left the fourth golden age with its future kind of, uh, you know, in a, in a good spot. So good stuff. All right. So now we leave the British Isles. We go back to America and uh, we basically get into a pioneering tour that started in 1997. Chris. Yeah. We, uh, we uh, leave a whole bunch of obnoxious British drinkers and druggers, uh, for a whole bunch of like hippie chicks that want to save the world, man, or not, <laughs> not hippie chicks, but you know what I'm saying? Just basically it, it was an, it was an adult contemporary, uh, uh tsunami, uh, coming to an amphitheater near you. Uh, this was the Lilith fair. Uh, this was the, uh, all female spin on the Lollapalooza horde, um, 
uh, sort of rolling uh, big uh, one day uh, festival like uh, show. And uh, this is uh, the brainchild and baby of Sarah McLaughlin, uh, the Canadian uh, Chanteuse. And uh, it, it only ran for three years, but its legacy, I would say, is as strong as all of the other. Uh, it's stronger than all of the other shows except for Lollapalooza. It really uh, did make a uh, resonate in the culture. So talk about it a little bit. So, yeah, like I said, you've got uh, Canadian songstress and heartaching ASCPA supporter Sarah McLaughlin starting Lilith Fair in 1997. Why? Because as she told uh, CNN in an interview in 1998, uh, she had a hard time finding festival gigs or promoters uh, that would feature two consecutive female uh, acts on the bill. Like, the, you know, mm. it was hard to find like two female acts in a row. Uh, you know, so this idea of, you know, maybe you had like the token woman uh, like that led off or, you know, just sort of they it was just sort of underemphasized. And so, yeah. So uh, from there, it, she kind of said. Because in 1996, she told CNN that she had a chance to do a couple of these shows, and instead, she chose to go out touring with Paula Cole, uh, mm. and, and sort of defiance of that. And so, out of that comes this idea of, you know what, you know, I I would love to see a succession of female artists. What the heck? Why don't I create my own show? And so, along with her manager and a couple of other promoters, uh, they created the Lilith Fair. Uh, named after uh, Adam's other uh, girl in the uh, Garden of Eden. Uh, you know, it wasn't all just about Eve. There was the mythical uh, Lilith uh, that was in the garden as well. So named after her. Uh, this was a uh, tour and a, uh, and a rolling show that over the course of its three years in its first run uh, made $10 million plus and really was the logical culmination of the rise of many, many respected female rock artists uh, during the fourth golden age, some of which we've covered over the course of this series. Uh, credit McLaughlin with having the business acumen to see a gap in the market and a strong demand for a new kind of festival. Uh, if it caught people by surprise, it probably was because they were dudes and they just, you know, naturally were, you know, had a, uh, we're predisposed to underestimate uh, the women around them. Uh, but anyway, uh, much like those other big name music festivals of the era, uh, Lil Fair shows featured several stages featuring artists of varying levels of renown and visibility. The inaugural tour featured 19 dates uh, starting on July 5th of 97 and ending on July 30th of 97. Uh, no surprise that McLaughlin performed on every one of those shows, but Arturo, can you name the only other woman to perform on every one of those initial uh, Lilith Fair tour shows? Uh, let me guess. Fiona Apple? Nope. Okay, let me keep thinking. Um, let's see. Not Tori Amos, because she wasn't on that. And she, right. she should have she should have been. But she uh, wasn't. Let's see. Mm-hmm. She wasn't, yeah. Um, let me think, let me think. I can't know. If it's not Fiona Apple, who was it? Suzanne Vega. Oh, wow. Okay. Of all, of all people. Uh, a 1987 one hit wonder uh, lives to tell the tale a, a decade later. You know, uh, uh, her name wasn't Luca, uh, so, as it turns <laughs> out. Anyway, so uh, here is a, uh, a roster. So notable performers on this tour. Like I said, they're the only two that played every show. But here are some of the notable performers uh, that did appear on some of the Lilith Fair shows of that first year. And it's a veritable who's who of hip and or hippie white women. Uh, Cheryl Crow. Jewel, mm-hmm. Natalie Merchant, 
Paula Cole, of course, Sean Colvin, uh, Lisa Loeb, uh, otherwise known as the, uh, uh, what was the name of that stupid movie? Um, uh, Reality Bites. She's the Reality yeah. Bites chick. Um, Meredith Brooks. Oh, you know. yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Meredith Brooks, uh, Tracy Bonham, who had uh, you know had a hit there with Mother Mother, which we covered on the last episode. Fiona Apple did play some shows. Uh, the Indigo Girls, because you can't have a, a female festival of any meaning uh, without the Indigo Girls, and Mary Chapin Carpenter. Uh, below those headliners rested a layer of some surprising, more indie-rific names: uh, Victoria Williams, Juliana Hatfield, Morchiba. Susanna Hoffs, uh, Beth Orton, and uh, Dido. Oh, and there was also Pat Benatar. Yeah, go figure. Mm. Anyway, uh, however, uh, outside of India Ari and Tracy Chapman, uh, representation was at a minimum. Uh, if Lilith Fair is easy for us to mock all these years later, that may be the main reason why. Like I said, it was it was a bunch of hip hip uh, adult contemporary white women. Uh, so, you know, the next year they tried to make up, they tried to lift that a little bit. And Erica Badu, Michelle and DJ Otello and Queen Latifah uh, participated uh, uh, and uh, were m- members of the rolling tour. But uh, that imbalance never really dissipated. But hey, at least Mary J. Blige played as part of the one-off Lilith Fair revival in 2010. So at least there's that. Uh, no matter though, uh, Lilith Fair and Sarah McLaughlin definitely deserve our respect. The tour legitimized the notion that women in rock and pop could drive box office revenue and killed the prejudic- prejudicial notion that they were at their best playing second fiddle to their boyfriends or their benefactors. Uh, the tour launched several careers into the warm spotlights, most notably that of Fiona Apple. So while maybe I'm glad I didn't have a smarty girlfriend who dragged me to one of these shows back there in 1997, I do acknowledge its ongoing legacy and everlasting existence as a punctuation mark here at the end of the fourth golden age of rock. Arturo, what say you? Yeah, I'm going to go to a quote. Um, not, 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 not a quote. Uh, Ani DeFranco, who yes. is the uh, uh, punk slash folk singer-songwriter who's had a really large following in the oh, 1990s. Yeah. From, from Buffalo, New York. Yep. From Buffalo, New York, yeah, near where you're from. Not Actually, not that close, but anyway. Yeah. She's, from the, she's from upstate New York, or the state of New York, and she she had a pretty strong following in the 90s and uh, with her very, very you know, feminist-centric lyrics and um, really just her, her indie attitude. Um, she talked in this interview basically – criticizing the Lilith Fair, saying that, yeah, okay, it's an all-female music festival. Great. But do all the artists and bands have to be so lightweight and middle of the road? <laughs> yep. Do they yep. have to be? My God, all these all these artists in the bill, it's just so soft. Oh, it's I know. So soft pop rock. Now, yeah. me, I'm, I'm thinking, L7. Ani DeFranco is right. Where's PJ Harvey? Where's Slater Kinney? Yeah. Where's L7? Yeah. Where's Where's Tori Amos? Where's yeah. Lucinda Williams? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, well, uh, on that note, uh, Lucinda Williams did actually play some shows in 1998. Oh, she did. Uh, okay. All right. Okay. So, so it wasn't a, 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 a totally exclusive of like women that rocked. Uh, Where, where's, where's Where's Kathleen Hanna? <laughs> she She no nowhere near the Lilith Fair bill. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, like oh, so I said. I mean, you know? yeah. Okay. An all female, all female music vessel. It came across. It came across like an all 
all like lightweight, wussy female music festival. Like, where's the aggressive, strong women here, man? Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, Ani had a point because, you know, I mean, well, Ani was one of those women that was so strong that she probably like scared like three quarters of the music business, which is probably why she stayed on the club circuit. Uh, You know, and well, and then I could be cynical and say, well, you know, her spot as the uh, as as the lesbian folk uh, singer was taken up by the Indigo Girls. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I know it's it's cynical, but it probably tell you the truth. It's sadly, but probably was true. Uh, at least for in a business sense. And, and yeah, I, one of the things about the Lilith Fair I'll, I'll make as one last comment is uh, I'll indict myself a little bit here that uh, I did refer to one of these artists as a chick. Uh, yeah. and, and I think that that was one of the uh, uh, waves of sentiment that um, McLaughlin and company were fighting against. Uh, and yeah. I would say for the most part, they really succeeded. Uh, they, there, there really was a, a sea change uh, as a result of efforts like this. And, you know, sort of, you know, female uh, inspired rock, I think, is more uh, popular and more meaningful than ever. So there you go. All right. Well, I mentioned PJ Harvey is one of those female artists that should should have been the top on the uh, top of the list on any all female music festival. Now we're going to go to a brilliant masterpiece seminal album of the 1990s that was partly inspired by her. And who am I talking about? Well, when the seminal Australian, well, I'm talking about Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Mm-hmm. And when the seminal Australian post-punk band, The Birthday Party, broke up in 1983, lead singer Nick Cave formed a new band called, well, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. <laughs> Throughout the rest of the 1980s, the band would go on to explore the darker, more sinister corners of American blues and folk music, but through an experimental post-punk lens. What sounds promising actually came out to be, with the exception of a few standout tracks, a lot of pretentious hogwash and overly theatrical posturing. Oh, Nick, you're so dark and edgy. Beware. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, Cave grew as a songwriter and lyricist as the 1990s came around. He ditched his goth Americana shtick and started to write more straightforward songs that not only mined the American blues and folk vernacular, but also lent some olive branches to the emerging alternative rock styles of the time. This lent an air of authenticity that he had always craved when he started The Bad Seeds. Starting with 1992's Henry's Dream, on to 1994's Let Love In, which has one of his most famous songs, Red Right Hand, and culminating in 1996's truly twisted murder ballads, Cave put out a trilogy of blues-based music that truly assimilated his punk and post-punk roots to emerge with something genuinely original and exciting. All of this brings us to the sudden stylistic turn with his 1997 album, The Boatman's Call. In the middle of the decade, uh, Cave found himself in a relationship with P.J. Harvey, the great P.J. Harvey. Uh, The breakup of that relationship resulted in that time-worn trope of rock and roll, Mm -hmm. the the breakup album. Bob Dylan with Blood on the Tracks, Beck with Sea Change, and Fleetwood Mac with Rumors. The end of, well, in Fleetwood Mac's case, multiple romances. (laughs) The end of a romance. (laughs) The end of a romance sparked Cave and by extent the Bad Seeds into doing some of the best work of his and their career. While I'm usually not a fan of gospel hymns, 
That's essentially what the music on this album amounts to. They're gospel hymns, not to God, but to the feeling and idea of love. And even more so, the age-old notion that it's better to have loved and lost that love than to have never had that love at all. Songs like Into My Arms, People Ain't No Good, There Is a Kingdom, and the utterly heartbreaking album closer, Green Eyes, show a depth, maturity, and a relatable humanity that Nick Cave's work had been leading to since the early 1990s. Cave and the Bad Seeds would go on to explore heavier rock soul and even and delve deeper into gospel in some really strong records in the noughties. But The Boatman's Call uh, is hands down the greatest album by this most critically acclaimed of bands. Chris? Yeah, uh, totally, totally agree. Uh, I've never been a huge Nick Cave fan. Like you said, he's got kind of a shtick uh, that sort of, like you said, that sort of goth Americana sort of, you know, burnt, uh, you know, sort of burnt edges of the earth uh, thing. But this is, the, I, I agree with you. I think this is his best record. I think that, uh, you know, Cave is definitely a very talented writer. Uh, and this is him at his most disciplined in a lot of ways. Uh, it's kind of funny. You said, mentioned, you know, PJ Harvey is the, uh, is one of the influences of this uh, record, his breakup with her. Well, you know, you got a song called green eyes. You got one called black hair. Where's the one called milky skin? Uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, just kind of, or, uh, or cute nose or, you know, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, big, big brain. Uh, but anyway, I, I digress. Uh, very good stuff. And again, you know, cave, you know, like I said, he, he went back and forth between be, in his career, between being an artist and an artiste, uh, artiste, Nick cave. I can't stand, uh, artist, Nick cave, uh, is, is capable of writing very strong songs and, uh, actually he's a good singer. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's a, I think an underrated singer and <laughs> for what it's worth, I always like to say it, uh, and this is an opportunity to make the joke, which I'm not really joking about. Greatest breakup album of all time, ACDC's Back in Black. <laughs> you, you get dumped, and you listen to that record, you will feel so much better. And it <laughs> it's so much catharsis. So much catharsis. On this episode, Chris and I broke down the year 1997, the final year of the fourth golden age of rock. For the next episode, we will scour the musical and cultural landscape in the aftermath of rock music's final golden age. Napster and file sharing in general completely changed the way music is consumed forever. The negative effects of the 1996 Telecommunications Act start to take hold as Clear Channel asserts its monopoly over American radio stations. The negative aspects of rap metal and new metal come to a head in the disastrous 1999 Woodstock Festival. But hey, good stuff happened too, as the late 1990s saw all-time classic albums produced by the likes of Neutral Milk Hotel, Lucinda Williams, Built to Spill, Bell and Sebastian, as well as the ongoing evolution of Beck. And what's that gnarly, scuzzy, garage rock sound emanating from Detroit from a supposedly brother-sister duo that would go on to define rock and roll for the next decade? Hmm, I wonder. Tune in next time as the Curmudgeon Rock Report will provide an appropriate postscript for the fourth golden age of rock.
See, speaking of catharsis, yeah. talk about a band letting their most indulgent impulses override them. Chris, take us to U2 and Pop and the Pop Mart tour uh, in 1997. This is uh, basically this is uh, U2 uh, accidentally uh, veering into Spinal Tap territory and uh, gloriously flaming out as uh, a band that uh, loved to be weird uh, and loved to not be safe. Uh, so, uh, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, uh, this, uh, this era of, of the U2, uh, uh, path. So the fourth golden age of rock had numerous narrative strands, uh, that persisted throughout its course. Here is one of them. U2 was weird the entire time. In fact, uh, this period comprises the entire weird chapter of U2's history. Uh, before this period, they became the best band in the world and then perhaps the most insufferable band in the world. Afterward, they played it safe and drew blood from its 80s ascendancy. A uh, couple of pretty good albums, but otherwise, meh. But in the 1990s, it was still cool to like you too. Uh, hating on them was not yet a pastime, otherwise known as the iPhone was still 15 years away. Uh, you know, if people remember that stunt there. So there was 1991's Octone Baby and 1993's Zuropa, uh, which were the sort of the, the, the poles of the band's amazing two-year-long, seemingly never-ending Zoo TV tour, uh, which we talked about in our 1992 episode of this series. And then came 1997's disappointing but easy-to-appreciate pop, on which The Edge and U2's fascination with EDM and house music and industrial rock went full blast. Uh, the band's members have gone on record multiple times over the years about how pop was actually an unfinished album. Uh, they had a, uh, it was a hard deadline. It was a, it was a second deadline. They were going to go past this, the first deadline. And so they got the, uh, the, the, the deadline pushed back a few months. They couldn't go over that one. And, uh, they had to hand it over to the label brass and uh, because of that, it was uh, underbaked and uh, inconsistently written, arranged, recorded, and mixed. When you listen to it, uh, it's pretty obvious. So as a result, uh, for every uh, Miami uh, and Mofo and If You Wear That Velvet Dress, which are three songs I love, uh, there were corresponding slop pieces like Discotech, Last Night on Earth, and Gone, which I don't like. Uh, it was pretty telling that when the band released the album's most well-known single, Staring at the Sun, it was uh, released and was done so in a noticeably more fine-tuned form. Uh, you would have thought that the damn thing had been uh, uh, re-recorded. It was so much cleaner. Anyway, okay, so uh, Pop, the album, proved unfortunately inconsequential over time. But I have to wonder if this would be considered uh, such a dustbin effort if it had not been for the disastrous tour the band embarked on to support the record. Now, Zoo TV, with its fabulous art direction and stunning conceptual take on rapidly forming junk media culture, was a remarkable accomplishment. And U2, uh, still the biggest rock band in the world in 1997, and riding high on what seemed like an unbreakable streak of success, thought that they could actually top that. Uh, newsflash, uh, no, uh, no, they couldn't. So, uh, the Pop Mart tour, as it was dubbed, was a, a very spectacular flop, especially in the United States. 
Uh, part of this was related to that deadline squeeze I mentioned that adversely affected uh, uh, preparation. You know, it, it adversely affected the album. And because they went so late on that, uh, they couldn't push back this tour. You know, the idea is they didn't have uh, adequate rehearsal time. You know, they only had a couple months to rehearse before they were going to go out uh, on the road. So when you have a stadium production of this magnitude, I mean, this this cost this tour cost like hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to produce, and it featured props like a gigantic mirror ball style lemon and a huge set of golden arches meant to mock uh, those of McDonald's. Uh, wasn't exactly feasible to push the start uh, dates back, you know, at this point, you know, you're renting yeah. the stadium, you have yeah. all this shit, you're going to have like a rolling uh, corporation, you can't really put that on, uh, put that on hold. So, uh, bizarrely, uh, the tour itself, uh, despite its over-the-top presentation and sort of, you know, like uh, swinging for the fensive, uh, fensive, you know, sort of creative presentation and all the satire of consumerism, uh, the uh, the set list that they leaned on generally over the course of 93 dates uh, in 11 months, it really veered closer to a greatest hits run through uh, than one supporting the album pop on a given night. Uh, while they did open the show with Mofo, only five or six other songs from pop made the cut and those were scattered throughout the show. Uh, contrast this with the Octung baby legs of Zoo TV where the band played most of that album in the first part of the show, not quite in succession, but basically like 10 or 11 of the songs in a row. And then they segued into the previous hits. Uh, Also consider that the band usually ended those zoo TV shows with love is blindness. And they ended these shows with one. So, you know, basically different feel and you know where this was going. Uh, Either way, uh, that's not what anyone would remember from these shows. Uh, nor was it chronicled all that much. Instead, the shows were met with a tepid critical response and overall fan indifference, which led to failure to sell out several shows in the U.S. I will let you cite a statistic on that, uh, Arturo, which is kind of hard to believe. Anyway, sometimes high concept can be a little too high concept, you know? Uh, It also didn't help that those props and the associated tech didn't always work. Uh, Consider one... Yeah, consider one hilarious episode, and apparently this was from a show in Oslo, Norway, that uh, AOL at one point dubbed a Spinal Tap moment. That article is no longer uh, available, but you know it's referenced all over the internet. Uh, during the encore of that show, uh, the band members normally in the encore they would emerge from a mechanical lemon. Uh, you know, they you know the like it's almost like the doors would open, you know, automatically, and then they would walk out and up smoke or something. But on that night, a mechanical failure left the band trapped inside temporarily, forcing them to escape via a hatch door. Don't! Or, <laughs> or this is their version of Hello Cleveland uh, from, from Spinal <laughs> Tap. What a disaster. So, you know, while the band has looked back on Pop Mart, uh, Pop Mart and the tour uh, in subsequent interviews over the years, they've they look back on it as uh, with fondness as uh, as an artistic venture. Uh, the tour really damaged its reputation and also its profitability. I mean, like this is the first time that you two look bad. Uh, they also, uh, from what I've read and what is out there, they lost a ton of money to the point where they almost yeah. went bankrupt. 
mm-hmm. according to an article that ran in April of 97 in the Spokane Spokesman Review back when there was such a thing as like a, a midtown newspaper, uh, mid-sized town uh, newspaper that people actually read. Uh, it was reported that the tour was costing the band $250,000 a day to produce. God. And, and keep in mind, this was self-financed too. So that's $1 million every four days for a tour that uh, lasted for 93 dates over the course of nearly a year. Ouch. Uh, needless mm-hmm. to say, the blows to the chin you 2 took from uh, the album and from the tour left it humbled, uh, which probably explains why the really, really good 2000 album, All That You Can't Leave Behind, was nonetheless uh, really as safe as it was. I mean, it was a safe record. Uh, marvelous songs, but safe. What a shame, because Weird U2 was the best U2. Arturo, what's your take on Pop Mart? Yeah, a few things. Yeah, it's fitting that the last year of the fourth golden age of rock, 1997, sees the flop of the biggest band in the world at the time. Yep. And the flop of the band that was in line to take their spot as the biggest band in the world, Oasis. Yep. And they both they both flop this year, and Oasis opened for you two. On, on the Oakland Coliseum uh, shows of this tour, which is uh, coincidentally enough. Um, the two things I want to talk about. First, the, sh- the shows. Second, the music. First, the shows. Uh, the European and Asian legs of this Pop Mart tour completely sold out. Every single show sold out. So whereas you 2 may have been damaged commercially in the U.S., they by no means were damaged commercially in Europe. They were still big, 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 big over there. Uh, Mexico sold out. The, the Argentinian shows sold out. The Brazilian shows sold out. Uh, Chile sold out. And even the Canadian shows, the shows in, uh, in Winnipeg, the shows in Edmonton, the shows in Toronto, Montreal, all sold out. It's the United States, particularly, where U2 really got damaged as far as just the the poor sales of pop and the poor ticket prices. Here are some uh, numbers to consider. On the first leg of the tour, where they actually still had some people coming out, coming out to see them, but not quite that many. Clemson, South Carolina, 36,000 tickets, only 20,000 sold. San Diego, Jack Murphy Stadium, 55,000 tickets, 30,000 sold. San Diego, Southern California used to be a prime U2 country. Here are the really damaging ones. The second leg of the North American tour in the U.S., Tampa, Houlihan Stadium, 50,000 tickets, 18,000 sold. Jacksonville, Altel Stadium, 50,000 tickets, 14,000 sold. Ouch, ouch. <laughs> you know, um, also Miami, uh, the show that I went to, I went to this show personally, uh, uh November, November 14th, 1997, the Miami Dolphin Stadium. Actually, this almost sold out 44,000 tickets, 42,000 sold. But across the rest of the country, they only sold like half or just barely two thirds. So it's, uh, it's interesting how you two, the, the, their star really fell in 97. Yeah. And it proves my theory that uh, they just don't like good music in Northern Florida. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now my other thing about the music, much like Oasis's be here now, 
with better production and some some more some surgical scalping and some nip and tucking, Pop could have been a really good album. Um, there are some really good songs here. The first, it, it, there's a startling contrast between the first half and the second half. The first half's got all the EDM stuff, all the electronic and the dance music. The second half is more ballad and experimental heavy. But there's some great tracks. If you wear that velvet dress, is the closest U2 has come to jazz. <laughs> it's yeah. like smooth, smooth jazz sounding, smooth jazz sounds. I think Please is a beautiful song that should have been the album uh, closer. Uh, Staring at the Sun is basically U2's ode to Noel Gallagher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Mo- I think Mofo is a great track. Oh, I love Mofo. Yeah. I like I like Do You Feel Loved, one of the best bass lines that uh, Adam Clayton has ever put on record. There's a lot to like in pop. 25 years later, it's not a disaster. And I, I think, I mean, it's not a great record. It's a three, three and a half star album. I agree. Mm-hmm. However... What I do appreciate about pop is that this is the last time U2 was a bold experimental band. This is the last time they were trying something new and different. From all that you can't leave behind onward, they've been super conservative. And that's where U2 lost me. Okay, so now we go from Ireland to Scotland, which, as uh, Mike Myers' character once said, if it's not Scottish, it's crap. Although, (laughs) uh, given some of this stuff, I would kind of disagree with that uh so so yeah it, it was a pretty good year what i would say maybe you can agree with this arthur this was kind of a prequel year because uh the scottish bands over the next several years after this uh yeah. had, a, had a very good run uh and the three bands we're going to talk about especially uh, had right. some measure of success that came after 1997 but like you said worth mentioning now yeah, because 97 is the year zero. That's where they really uh, got their shit going. Um, as the Britpop movement was coming to an end, Scotland started to emerge as the new mecca for indie alternative rock music. Some truly original and eventually pretty influential bands started to make noise in 1997. So here's a short roll call. Mogwai and their album, their debut album, Young Team. Now, for all intents and purposes, the Louisville, Kentucky band Slint pretty much invented post-rock when they released their groundbreaking classic album Spiderland in 1991, which we covered in detail in our 1991 episode of the fourth golden age of rock. While bands like Tortoise from over in Chicago started to take the post-rock template and add elements of jazz and dub reggae in the mid-1990s, Glasgow, Scotland, very own Mogwai really drew strongly from Slint's sound while augmenting it with a punishingly heavy, almost heavy metal guitar sound. They were so post-rock that they didn't even bother with putting vocals to their music. (laughs) Uh, I have to be honest here. I'm not a huge Mogwai fan, although I respect them quite a bit. Most of their songs tend to be monotonous and same-sounding, they start slow and menacing, then reach super heavy crescendos, then end slowly in the same way they began. <laughs> yeah, that, why <laughs> that's yep. Mogwai. Yeah, um, it's why I can take Mogwai only in small doses. However, most of those great doses are on their debut album, Young Teen, which is when their sound came across as fresh and interesting before it became formulaic. New Paths to Helicon shimmers with ghostly beauty. The 11-minute epic like Herod 
has a bass-driven groove that most stoner metal bands would die for before coming in and out of heavy-as-fuck sections with distorted riffs that aren't too far from new metal. Uh, Summer is a rolling, dramatic piece done in waltz time, kind of like a post-rock sea shanty. If you feel you only need one Mogwai album in your life, Young Team is probably the one to have. Chris? Yeah, uh, Mogwai definitely capable of, of rock and balls. Uh, I think that this album and the, the for a couple after it were pretty strong. And then like they kind of like they phoned it in for a long time. It's just kind of like, you know, Mogwai by numbers. Yeah. Uh, but recently, like that album, you know, I mentioned it, you know, I like to focus on the Mercury Prize at the end of each year. Uh, you know, th- those award shows that Mogwai actually was nominated, f- uh, uh, their album uh, from last year. Uh, was nominated for the uh, Mercury Prize. Didn't win, but it was a good record. It was probably their best record in about like at least a dozen years, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. uh, so hey, you know they're coming back around. But yeah, like you said, they're they're part of the post rock thing. Uh, there are very few post rock bands I actually <laughs> like. Uh, I guess Swans would be one of those. Uh, Slint, and then yeah, Mogwai once in a while. The rest of it is just garbage, you know. So yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, like a, a few, like Slint could do it well. Not too many other people could. Right now, here's a band that weren't quite original, but were still pretty good when they first came out. I'm talking about the Beta Band and their EP Champions versions. Now, in 1998, music critics, especially U.S. music critics, salivated over a compilation released by Scottish indie band the Beta Band. The record, simply titled The Three EPs, compiled the three EPs the band released from 1997 through 98. It's a terrific record, but the best and most memorable stuff on the collection uh, is the four songs that make up the first EP from 1997 titled Champions Versions. Essentially, the beta band were a post-Britpop version of Beck particularly the early Beck sound of Mellow Gold and his more avant-garde, obscure work like Stereopathetic Soul Manure. Uh, They mixed funk, folk, and whacked-out psychedelia with such aplomb that they would have made Mr. Hansen himself proud or pissed off enough to want to sue them for style infringement. (laughs) Whichever one you want to stand out. Yeah, exactly. Standout tracks include Dry the Rain, which is pretty much the band's anthem and mission statement. What starts off as a plaintive, wistful folk melody and strumming sing-along builds and blooms into a full-on trumpet-charged, bombastic rocker with an endless Hey Jude-esque refrain. Dogs Got a Bone is a beautiful song of longing set to downbeat psychedelic folk reminiscent of Kevin Ayers and, yes, Beck. (laughs) the beta band would trudge along for a few more years making some pretty interesting music but they never again matched what they did on their first three eps particularly their first one from 1997 chris oh i'll I'll definitely say that uh the beta band was scorching hot when i first moved to new york when we first moved to new york fall of 98 all the way through the summer of 1999 they were one of the hottest bands in indie rock when they came through their uh you know press tour you know i i interviewed them in that in that phase they were obnoxious for what it's worth but uh they were but there was a reason for it uh and there's a reason why in the uh movie 
uh, or the film adaptation of High Fidelity that the uh, that that one uh, you know scene where everybody stops what they're doing and it's like this excitement builds. There's a reason why Dry the Rain <laughs> yeah. you know, works in yeah. that scene. I mean, it's a it's a great great song. Well, it brings us to the next Scottish band and probably the most well known of them all. Since 1996, Bell and Sebastian have been the poster boys and girls for soft, twee, almost fey indie pop. And mm-hmm. there's a reason for that. They're fucking great at it. Yep. <laughs> really certainly, certainly better than the vast majority of bands and artists who treaded or continue to tread on similar ground. Uh, the reason for this has been their sheer stylistic eclecticism and willingness to experiment with sounds and texture, things they would explore even more so in the next decade. As far as 1997 is concerned, they had already released two full-length albums the previous year to great critical acclaim and were now about to embark on a series of EPs that would define them and cement their status as true inheritors of the Smiths' miserable mope-rock mantle, except without Morrissey's obnoxious self-importance and persecution complex. (laughs) Uh, The first EP of that year, Dogs on Wheels, 1997, is a gorgeous collection of subtly orchestrated slight shades of 1960s folk rock whose key track is The State I Am In, where Bell and Sebastian's chief singer-songwriter Stuart Murdoch croons to affect to affecting effect (laughs) quote my brother had confessed that he was gay it took the heat off me for a little while (laughs) this emotionally wrenching tale of family dysfunction builds to a fluid climax of melodic beauty they would top themselves with the next ep lazy line painter jane which has some of the best songs in the band's entire discography the dark sinister mood of the title track is set by a wicked throbbing bass line and is propelled by alternating uh, vocals between Murdoch and guest singer Monica Queen. It was recorded in a church hall and it sounds like it with a yep. vast coffinous sound that builds and builds while being anchored by a guitar sound that is slightly heavy for their standards and a dramatic organ riff. The other great track on the EP, Photo Jenny, sounds like a sped up version of the Smith of the Smith's jingle jangle chiming indie rock with a powerful organ arrangement and a chorus so catchy you would think it's always existed. Mm-hmm. The band, Bell and Sebastian, would go on to release their masterpiece album the following year, which will be covered in the next episode. But if you like your Bell and Sebastian in delightfully tasty small installments, Their two EPs from 1997, Lazy Line Painter Jane and Dogs on Wheels, will hit the spot. Chris? Yeah, uh, definitely an excellent band uh, that defined the the very narrow soft rock lane uh, in which it traveled. Uh, Yeah. yeah, Very good stuff. Like you said, that album that you mentioned from 1998 being the best of it. Uh, Here was a weird thing that occurred to me while I was researching this record and like listening to some old Bell and Sebastian. Stuart Murdoch, he sounds to me, he, he his voice, and he reminded me a whole lot of. You remember the song "The Year of the Cat"? Ah, yes, Al Stewart. Who? <laughs> it turns out, from my research, is Scottish. Yay! Yeah. So, hey, I guess that didn't come from nowhere. Uh, that that was just bizarre because I'm like listening to it and I'm hearing "The Year of the Cat," you know, uh, in in the back in the back of my head, and so. Hey, you know, I guess there is a, a lineage 
uh, for this kind of thing that, that, that comes out of strategy. <laughs> yeah. that, that comes, you know, hey, go, go figure. Yeah, I, hey, you know, I mean, that's a great song, by the way. You know, I mean, think about, you know, I mean, what, we were like four years old when it came out or whatever, but Year of the Cat, great, great pop single. Really, really great soft rock uh, right. nugget. So we move on from Scotland going back to England to a great band that got royally fucked. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, they did. And uh, we'll explain it here in a bit, but this is a pretty strong segment on which to end our uh, substantive uh, run through what we're calling the true fourth golden age of rock, which is 91 to 97. Uh, the next episode will be kind of an epilogue of sort of the the back end of this period explaining, you know, there was good stuff, but there was also the sort of deterioration stuff that happened too. Anyway, uh, let us talk about uh, Bittersweet Symphony and uh, and The Verve and uh, the greatest smash money-making hit that didn't make the guy who wrote it a whole lot of money uh, <laughs> or any money uh, for a long time. So let us talk about Richard Ashcroft, The Verve, Alan Klein, Andrew Lou Goldham, and Bittersweet Symphony. The verse Richard Ashcroft won, wrote one of the biggest hits of 1997 and got paid for it in 2019. Uh, we will explain how this whole screw job worked in a minute, but first let me share a joyous tweet that Ashcroft published uh, on Twitter on May 23rd, uh, 2019. Quote, it gives me great pleasure to announce that as of last month, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards agreed to give me their share of the song, uh, Bittersweet Symphony. This remarkable and life-affirming turn of events was made possible by a kind and magnanimous gesture from Mick and Keith, who have also agreed that they are happy for the writing credit to exclude their names and all their royalties derived from the songs they will now pass on to me. I would like to thank uh, the main players in this, my management, Steve Kuttner and John Kennedy, the Stones manager, Joyce Smith, and Jody Klein uh, for actually taking the call. We'll, we'll explain that in a minute, but for actually taking my call. And lastly, a huge unreserved heartfelt thanks and respect to Mick and Keith. Music is power, end quote. Uh, damn right, music is power and justice shall prevail. So wait. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards collected most of the dough that Bittersweet Symphony generated? Uh, in th Well, technically, yes. Uh, the song uh, really was a veritable license to print money. And for 22 years, Ashcroft, who should have been captaining a small yacht by now, got none of it. Uh, this stands as by far the most outrageous punishment an artist ever received, for using an unsample up uh, for a, using a sample from another artist's work to frame a hit song, uh, "Bittersweet Symphony" itself is a mesmerizing and intense six-minute-long pop ballad that does indeed borrow from Mick and Keith, sorta. Of. And so we'll explain it. I mean, the song is marvelous. Y'all remember the video with uh, Ashcroft walking down the street, uh, obnoxiously bumping people, uh, you know, uh, out of his way. Uh, fantastic stuff. So anyway, so let's explain this. You see, uh, the producer of many of these Rolling Stones records prior to 1968 was a guy named Andrew Luke Oldham. Uh, young guy's about their age, but he you know, was very proficient and uh, he produced the records. Well, he had a nifty idea in 1996 or in 1966. 1966, not 96, 66. 
uh, he assembled an orchestra named, yes, the Andrew, Lu- uh, the Andrew Oldham Orchestra. And he created an 11-song, 33-minute record featuring goopy, cinema-ready versions of Rolling Stone songs. Uh, one of these was a rendition of the rock ditty, The Last Time, which other than uh, demonstrating the basic chord progression sounds almost nothing like the original version of The Last Time recorded by the Rolling Stones. If you didn't know that they were the same song, you truly would not know that this is the same song, this Andrew Oldham Orchestra version. Uh, Rather, it sounds like the kind of thing you'd hear in a French soft porn take on the life of Napoleon. (laughs) Slowed, stretched out, lots of percussion, and a dramatic string section arrangement. It's that string section arrangement, though, through which Oldham takes the most liberties with his source material. And it's that string of sa- uh, string section arrangement that inspired the Verve's assembly and production of Bittersweet Symphony. When you listen to both the Verve song and the Oldham Orchestra song, then, well, yeah, it's very, 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 very obvious that Ashcroft cribbed his strings from the earlier recording. There can be no argument that this is not textbook copyright infringement. Uh, you know, basically, you know, the way that a br- very brief overview, the way that the copyright system works is that uh, the author of an artist is granted a copyright, doesn't even have to apply for it. Uh, you can use the copyright mark. Um, and so authorship is protected, you know, via the Constitution in the United States. And so if there is an, a misappropriation or a misuse or an unauthorized use uh, of the work, uh, the uh, the holder of the rights or the you know the owner of the copyrights or the owner of the uh, the publishing or the the work uh, has the right to sue. Now that said, we assure you that in this case, uh, this song was a much better and much more artistically meaningful song than MC Hammer's "You Can't Touch This," <laughs> which in essence pulled the same trick with Rick James' "Superfly." But once a settlement was super, uh, super freak, not super fly, super freak, not super fly. <laughs> okay. Super freak. Yeah. <laughs> She's a super fly, super fly. Okay. Oh, the fact, the fact check correction of the week from Arturo. There you go. Anyway, once a settlement was hammered out there, see what I did there. Uh, MC, yeah. MC hammer still walked away from it as an extremely wealthy man. As we have said, though, Ashcroft walked away with virtually nothing. Why? Uh, For starters, this had very little to actually do with uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Rather, this was an aggressive, brutal litigation brought forth by Alan Klein, a notorious figure in the annals of rock who allegedly swindled money from Sam Cooke, Apple Records, and other entities in rock and roll, including the Rolling Stones. Uh, Klein founded Abco Records, the Stones' original label and, you know, sort of home, and he managed uh, the Stones directly for five years. But then he was sued by the band in uh, uh, 1970, and uh, but for basically financial uh, chicanery, uh, Jagger suspected that uh, Klein was stealing money from them. Uh, it's pretty much demonstrable that he was stealing money from Oldham and Cook and a whole bunch of other folks. He actually went to jail for two months in 1980 for tax evasion. Yeah, lovely guy. But anyway, they had this fight, 
and it went on for years. And then somehow by the beginning of the 1990s, you know, Mick and Keith were cool with, with Klein and they had this relationship with a uh, business relationship where he, you know, he owned the publishing rights through Abco of the, at least the first part of their, uh, of their catalog. You know, he owned basically the Deca, the Deca records part of the Rolling Stones catalog, which ran from the beginning through let it bleed starting in 1970, 71 yes. fingers. It was Rolling Stones records distributed by Atlantic. Right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. So Abco as being kind of home based Deca records uh, from there. But so, so it's kind of like Klein owns Abco, which owns the publishing rights to all of the songs that the songs released on albums through Decca records. Okay. So, uh, so that begins to explain why Klein is in a position to sue uh, the Verve over that sample from the last time in the first place. So now while Decca records, this is where it gets tricky. Uh, from what I've read and from what I, in my research, the Verve approached Decca about getting permission to use the sample from the Oldham Orchestra record. And they were granted it. However, they did not approach Abco, which again, it's you know the uh, the the label owns the mechanical part of this, which is the recording, and Klein owns the publishing part of this, you know, and which you know the songwriting, uh, you know, sort of um, the catalog. And so he did not apparently approach Abco, and so because of that, uh, Klein. Once that song came out, he pounced on that. Uh, but things got worse uh, in 1999 after Klein had originally brought suit via Abco. Um, it, it got worse when Oldham uh, himself sued the Verve in uh, early 1999 over use of the sample, uh, claiming that you know he he did own the recording rights and he had been continuing to receive mechanical royalties related to that album. Uh, amazingly, and this is this is like one of the highlights of my week, uh, via the gifts of the internet, I can quote from an article that I myself wrote about this back uh, for the dearly departed SonicNet, uh, which is a precursor to MTV News Online back in very early 1999. Quoting myself, or quoting my own, which I couldn't even, I, before this, Arturo, I don't. Yeah. Even, I don't remember writing this, and I don't remember doing any of this. So this is <laughs> this is kind of neat. So uh, here we go. Oldham reached at his home in Bogota, Colombia, on Monday, said he is seeking his share of the considerable revenue generated by Bittersweet Symphony, which sold more than a million copies as a single, and was used in advertising campaigns by Vauxhall, a European automobile company, and the sneaker magnet Nike. Uh, I'm looking for royalties and damages for the illegal use of my recording that was copied or stolen or however you want to put it, Oldham said. A London-based spokesperson for The Verve said the art pop band had no comment, but he said the dispute seems to be between Oldham and Klein. Uh, money has been paid out that Lou Oldham has not received, and that's what the problem is, the spokesperson said. Okay, so now back to... You know, it's like back to me after quoting me. Uh, <laughs> thus, uh, Richard Ascroft's greatest success became collateral damage in a decades long pissing match between Klein and Oldham. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, there is a lot out there about how badly Klein screwed Oldham out of payments owed to him back in the 60s. 
a lovely guy, this guy, uh, Alan Klein, apparently was. Um, one of, if you think about it, one of the great villains in the history of the music business, uh, really. So now when the dust settled and the case, this case settled as well, uh, Jagger and Richards, uh, via their ongoing association with ABCO, received all of the publishing royalties from Bittersweet Symphony. And Oldham received all of the mechanical royalties. And Ashcroft, he walked away with $1,000 for, <laughs> yeah, for his creative but risk-taking output. Uh, this was the equivalent of killing a cockroach with an AR-15. Uh, mm-hmm. Just, you know, punishment way, way, way didn't fit the crime. Now, Alan Klein died in 2009, uh, but this saga did not die with him. Klein's son, Jody, assumed control of APCO, and the beat went on. Uh, Ashcroft's tweet from 2019 strongly suggests that Jagger and Richards personally intervened uh, to make all of this right, finally. Uh, I imagine it must have happened quickly because, as late as November of 2018, Ashcroft was telling media types uh, the following. Now, this comes from an article published by Consequence. Quote, uh, fucking Mr. Jr. now has taken over that company, Ashcroft says of Klein's son, Jody, who is now the head of ABCO. Quote, I'm coming for that money. Someone stole God knows how many millions of dollars off me in 1997, and they've still got it. In terms, in normal basic terms, I don't care where you come from. That's serious matter. So I'm telling him, I'm telling Alan Klein Jr., I'm coming for my money, man. Quote, you know, when his dad was around, Ashcroft continues, people could intimidate people by being a gangster in the music industry. Unfortunately, anyone who takes over that business, uh, for anyone that does that, we now live in a world where anyone can be a gangster. Anyone can be a virtual gangster. You can be a gangster in whatever way you want. You can form, uh, you can, from two phone calls, you can find a gangster. Everyone's a gangster. So there's no gangster fucking attitude anymore. Okay, this isn't really making sense, but okay, Richard, whatever. <laughs> so there's, yeah. no, there's no fucking gangster sh- attitude anymore. There's no fear with this shit. Like some big figure. You know, it makes me laugh when I hear about these big managers from the 70s and, and stuff. It's like, get out of here. You wouldn't last five minutes. These guys now. Because it's a different world, and anyone who would work for that company would know that. And Ashcroft was indeed right about this whole, you know, sort of diminishing uh, gangster uh, culture. Uh, the internet was the worst thing to ever happen to the music industry in a number of ways. And, uh, that was one of them. Uh, you know, again, that whole, uh, punk ass Godfather thing yeah, kind of right. sort of going away, um, uh, is one of those. So, uh, now pretty much all has been made right with the situation. I have two questions and one comment. First yes. question. Why th- this is 1997. Why didn't Ashcroft clear the sample? At the time when they were recording, yeah, I uh, probably just from uh, a combination of of you know not having full information and probably some bad legal advice and probably mm-hmm. some you know some bad man you know, basically bad management. So the idea is, I guess there was a misunderstanding, and again, it, it does take some time to really understand this that. Um, the royalties thing, it, it, there's a divide. I remember at one point, you know, when we were still planning this podcast, there was discussion about possibly licensing uh, Nirvana's song Curmudgeon for our theme song. 
Well, the problem with that is this is just an example. There's two types of royalties. There's the royalties in which you get the right to cover the song. Like they, they mm-hmm. you basically get a, uh, a license. It's called a sync license where you now have the ability to use or to record a version of that song. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there's the mechanical royalty part of it is which, which you get the right to actually use the recording. Uh, mm-hmm. The latter costs a hell of a lot more. But if you didn't do your research and was just kind of half-assing it, maybe you proceed and you're not crossing your uh, T's and dotting your I's. I think that's what happened here. So he figured by going to DECA and uh, getting the clearance for the recording and for the musical part of this, he, he figured he was covered. Uh, wasn't thinking that somebody probably didn't put it to him that he needed to get the to get the songwriting guys on board, to, you know, the, the, the publishers on board right. as well. And so it was a blind spot. And so, yeah, I mean, it, um, it just worked out in his favor. And then not only that, but I think it was the combination of that. And the fact that, like I said, the, uh, the, the, the sample is blatant, uh, yeah. you know, I, apparently, you know, Oldham had claimed in some interviews that, uh, that the band had said, Oh, we're only going to use uh, this little bit here. Instead, they basically used like the entire, you know, that, that entire segment or that entire, like, you know, I guess strings riff, if you want to call it that. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Well, second. Now, my second question. Uh huh. Um, Alan Klein died in two thousand nine. Why did Ashcroft wait nine or ten years to get his money? Well, I mean, he says in his tweet that uh, it took. You know, he he thanked Jody Klein for finally getting on the phone, and so mm-hmm. it seems like he had been at this for a long time. Uh. I'd have to really examine it more deeply. It could have just been that, you know, it was like came in waves where Ashcroft is feeling sorry for himself and then tried and then fell again, then tried. And so it could have been an up and down thing. Uh, but, you know, basically when, you know, you're, he's the little guy in all this, right? And so the the industry is, is uh, kind of fashioned in a way to pound him over the head. Uh, the other thing too is who knows, the British... I don't know much about the British legal system, but it could, it could be even more annoying than ours. <laughs> you know, right. So, you know, the wheels of justice move slow. So, but yeah, you're right. It does seem uh, kind of implausible that he would go 22 years making no yeah. money from like an enormous <laughs> yeah. hit, but yeah. there you go. It was, what a, what a strange uh, story yeah. you know, for sure. And, and the comment I have is that, it's a shame all, all the hullabaloo over this song. What gets lost is that the album that this song comes from, Urban Hymns, it's really is good. A, it's yeah. a fantastic record. One of the best albums of the decade. In my opinion, it's one of the 500 greatest albums ever made. It's a beautiful, timeless, gorgeous orchestral sweep of a rock album. Oh, yeah. Um, there's so many great songs on this. Sonnet. Uh, Lucky Man, The Drugs Don't Work was another was a huge hit in the UK. Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's a ballad. There's so many great tracks on this album, one after another. Oh, yeah. And that's what gets lost, is that this is one of the truly all-time great albums. Uh, and, and it's one of the seminal albums of the fourth golden age of rock. <laughs> yeah, and, and Ashcroft was an incredible talent. Uh, and it's worth mentioning, yeah, okay, fine, the, uh, the sample was blatant, but he built a really tremendous song around it. Uh, in, yeah. in terms of the other touches, it's just ha- got this sort of, it's a really mesmerizing, uh, 
you know, kind of uh, really lovely uh, ballad with this really great melody and vocal performance on it. And so right. it's a shame, you know, it's just uh, he, there was a blind spot there. Klein exploited it. And, you know, kind of, as he said in that rambling quote, there is this code of gangster thing that, you know, he yeah. that came in and, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, I think he probably was just, uh, I don't know. I mean, he could have just felt overwhelmed. I don't know, but it's, it's sad for sure. Yeah. Well, it's a shame that we end the fourth golden age of rock on a slightly sad that eventually had a good note 22 years later. Yeah. <laughs> However, we're going to end it now. And our next episode will be the postscript or the aftermath of the fourth golden age of rock focusing on the late 1990s. We hope you all tune in for it. A lot of interesting stuff, a lot of yeah. bad, a lot of good. You've yeah. got the, the, ri the rise and fall of Napster, which kind of like broke open the doors for digital distribution. Uh, the, 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 the clenching fist of Clear Channel over rock radio, the rise of new metal that culminated in the disastrous Woodstock 99 festival, yep. but good stuff. Good stuff happened too. lots of great albums by some of the big names that you know of and some names you don't know of. And we're going to talk all about that in our postscript aftermath episode of the fourth golden age of rock. So that was awesome, right? If you enjoyed this, please feel free to join our curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash curmudgeon rock. And as always, if you have uh, random musings, thoughts, complaints, or anything else, you can hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Well, folks, have a good two weeks, and we'll see you back here for our epilogue episode of the Fourth Golden Age of Rock, where we cover the uh, wondrous, sometimes, and mostly destructive years of 1998 and 1999.